Welcome, welcome everyone to yet another episode of Health News Around the World. We go through a lot in this episode. Specifically, we focus on a lot of non-COVID related stories first, including the most recent Elizabeth Holmes ruling where Holmes was found guilty. We also go over a new study that was released that showed uh, a new social determinant of health, which may relate to gig economy workers such as Uber and Lyft drivers. And we also then pivot to COVID stories related to Omicron. You will notice that Omicron is spiking across the United States and ICUs are about 70% full. We dive very deep into the numbers behind all of that and more. In fact, we even do a little stint on long COVID and the fact that, believe it or not, there are actually more people now uh, with long COVID than individuals who have died from COVID. And so long COVID is becoming very quickly a big issue. We end the show by talking about the most recent Joe Rogan podcast with Dr. Robert Malone, who, um, you know, it was a very controversial podcast that discussed a lot of different things that could and likely were misinformation. And so you hear about all of this from the perspective of doctors, physicians, scientists, tech enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, as well as business and industry experts all on stage. And so we hope you enjoy it. Let's get to the show. All right. So let's run through the non-COVID stories since there, you know, and, and just to be very clear, what's really fascinating right now is how prevalent the non-COVID stories has been, have been this week. So I really do want to take a significant amount of time today addressing a few things that have happened in the last, and just for people that don't know, we're health news around the world. We're off of the tech news around the world. Uh, we're part of the tech news around the world family. We focus on both tech related health news, but then also uh, uh, non tech related health news. Uh, and what, what makes this special, and I want to be very clear, is that uh, we want to try to focus as much on the actual evidence that's out there instead of how we feel. Everybody feels all kinds of way these days. <laughs> uh, and I think that's completely fair. But the thing that makes this different is you can share how you feel, but you got to be very clear about the fact that this is not based on evidence. Because this is, if you want to go to feeling rooms, go down clubhouse, there's a million rooms. But what we're going to try to do is keep things civil, keep things fact-based, and uh, walk through what's happening in terms of, uh, in terms of both tech and non-tech. So the first story... And, and, and usually I'm, uh, I'm joined uh, by my uh, co-host, Prerak. Uh, Prerak is a, uh, is a MD, MBA student at Yale. He's finishing up, which is exciting. Uh, he's going to be going into internal medicine. And uh, what's exciting is he, he, I joke with him, but you know, he knows what's going on on the ground. Um, and it's, it's super helpful to have him. He's actually on his way to a flight right now. So he'll be joining us in a few minutes. All right, so let's run through everything. So the first story that we had was about a really interesting JAMA Network art, uh, journal. And again, because uh, give me a second, I'm going to pin the link at the top here. All right. So if you guys can see the, the article, it's a very interesting article. So what they, this JAMA uh, viewpoint uh, uh, was, was, was fascinating to me because the first quote in the in the viewpoint is a man's employment status was a stronger predictor of his risk of dying from coronary heart disease than any of the more familiar risk factors so we've known this for a while right there are when people think about health they think about clinical determinants of health and then they think about non-clinical determinants of health so uh uh, the story that many of you have heard me say before is the greatest advancement we've had in healthcare outcomes 
has not been something from healthcare. It was plumbing, right? And that's the reality. And that's a social determinant of health. Having access to plumbing is a social determinant of health. Well, what's interesting about this article is that they said that being a gig economy worker is a social determinant of health now. And, you know, we talk a lot about the gig economy, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, 5% of U.S. GDP comes from 57 million freelance workers. It has become that prevalent. And, uh, you know, during the, the pandemic, we've seen the need for these gig workers skyrocket. So that was 2019 was obviously pre-pandemic uh, in its full swing. And, uh, you know, a lot of people lost full-time work. They switched to gig economy. So even though in 2019 it was 5%, I'd be very curious to see uh, how, uh, how, how that number has changed since. But this study was uh, what essentially showed that gig workers actually had worse health outcomes. And that was what surprised me, actually, which was, you know, people talk about gig work and they say, oh, you have more freedom, you have more flexibility. But uh, what they found is that it's actually a modifiable cardiovascular risk factor. And guess what gig economy workers don't have? Health insurance, most of the time. So uh, to give you guys some context on how much this affects things, um, when they looked at gig economy workers, and I'm trying to find the exact data here, uh, they said they looked at uh, San Francisco taxi drivers, and 35% of them had four or more cardiovascular risk factors, including current smoking in about 36%, and no physical regular physical activity in 33% of the workers, as compared to baseline. So it gives you a sense of how much more prevalent those things are. There's prereq, uh, and any thoughts on this? I mean, does this mean that, one, how does this change our policy? One, should we require that anybody that's that, that runs one of these gig economy startups provide health insurance since it's a modifiable risk factor? I'll start with that question. Now, Dr. Danish, under, um, I mean, that's one of the problems because they're technically not employees. Um, let's say it was Uber or something like that, um, they couldn't even get a tax deduction for providing, you know, um, the, the, or they, they can get the tax deduction maybe, but they can't, but the, they can't provide the benefit tax-free. I think, I think the way that the laws are written, you could only give health insurance tax-free to an employee. So we, we, we just have a problem with the laws, okay? And I actually argue, quite frankly, this is my own view, that this is why we should just have some something closer to a European or Canadian system. I mean, we're, we're, we're the only country that does what we do, okay? You know, in terms of that your health insurance is tied to your job. I mean, and even Republicans have tried, quite frankly, over time to try to, in a different way than maybe Bernie Sanders, but they also wanted to break the connection between employment um, and health insurance. I mean, that that is the core problem. But Ken, Ken it wasn't the Affordable Care Act explicitly supposed to protect this kind of worker? I mean, I remember Nancy Pelosi talking no, about... No, you have to be an employee. You, know, you, you have to have 32 hours. So here's, here's where we went wrong in the law. I mean, this is a technicality, okay? Well, it's an employee technicality. But you, you, if you, you, they only have to provide insurance 
employers only have to provide insurance. First of all, you have to be an employer and have an employer-employee relationship. So a gig worker doesn't have that. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, Evan. Why don't? But even even, even let me finish. Ten. Okay. Even on the but then you have to work thirty-two hours before they are required to have insurance. They give you insurance. So what a lot of companies did to get around the law is they said, okay, rather than having, let's say, 100 workers um, working uh, 40 hours, we'll just cut everybody and we'll make 200 workers working, you know, 20 hours, you know? So the, the FTEs didn't change, but they, they basically got everybody, they tried to get people below 32 hours so they didn't have to provide the insurance. So one of the great mistakes of the law was that it focused in on, let's say, a 50-employee level where, where the requirement is, and then said and if you have 50 more employees, anybody working more than 30, 32 or more hours a week has to have, um, you know, you have to provide the insurance, okay? Um, and then, of course, people were supposed to buy insurance if, or if they didn't have insurance, but that mandate went away. Um, they should have focused in on FTEs. They should have said, we don't really care whether you've got... Um, you know, a hundred people, you know, working 40 hours, you know, or 200, you know, or, or two, you know, or whatever the math works out. I'm, I'm, it's early in the morning in the West Coast, but you know what I'm saying? Whether you double the number of employees and half the number of hours, we it's, it's the same number of FTEs and the law yeah. should have been written on FTEs. I agree with that. Uh, Evan, I want to make sure you had a chance to finish your point and then I want to go to Vinay about what they're doing in India. But Evan, well, I, go ahead. I am a gig worker of sorts. I don't drive Uber, <clears throat> but I have, I'm a sole proprietor kind of business. And it, because of the Affordable Care Act, I was able to buy health insurance on the exchange uh, at a reasonable rate. And Evan, can uh, I ask a question about that? Did thank you, God, because, uh, you know, Evan, if I have a question about that, one second. Yeah. So did you buy it as a consumer or did you buy it from the shop marketplace? I bought it as just uh, an individual consumer and I shopped around. This is years ago when I left Oracle and it was fantastic. And, and I remember Nancy Pelosi talking about how people with the Affordable Care Act won't have to be beholden to their employers and they can buy insurance subsidized according to their income level. And mine isn't subsidized, sadly, but nevertheless, it, I have a pre-existing condition, so I had access to it. Where did we go wrong? Because this was the big idea that folks, even at the low income, would be have totally subsidized uh, health insurance, and I'm wondering where the Affordable Care Act went wrong. So, so I'll tell you, in every area where it went wrong, by the way, is on deduct deductibles, Evan. So even if you can get the insurance for next to nothing because you have a very low income, let's say you can get it $29 a month, whatever, go look at what those deductibles are. There's no way those insurance companies can afford to take on people with pre-existing conditions without some substantial deductibles. You probably have a decent deductible, but you could afford to pay it, so it doesn't even, you know, think about it, okay? But, you know, for, for low-income people, you know, if they've got a $3,000 deductible or something, um, you know, that's that, that's enormous uh, for them. So, I mean, that, that that is part of the problem, is that there's, 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 there's simply no way to get private insurance companies without them going under to cover people on first dollar basis for pre-existing without much higher levels of government subsidies, at which point if the government subsidies are that high, you might as well have the government just run the program. So anyway, that, that's my thought on that. Yeah, no, that's helpful. David, wanted to give you a chance to, to weigh in as well. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to, to ask what state 
Evan, you're in. Because in Texas, which for political reasons declined to expand Medicaid, that that corridor that was intended when Nancy Pelosi spoke, um, that target was missed. I'm also in one of the excluded categories, being a veteran. And since at the very top line, they ask, are you covered by Medicaid? Capable of being kept covered by Medicaid, sorry. Uh, Medicare or a member of the VA. And since I am a veteran, I'm excluded from subsidies, all that stuff, which really screws with my twin children because now I have to be an owner on the same policy, which means I can't cover my children. I have to go through my ex. It's very complicated and very expensive in states that are, um, <laughs> Joe Rogan's already come up as a, as a mention, um, where people are, are playing games with the tax code. And I think this is just a feature of capitalism. In fact, my children were born on Medicaid because my, um, my exes, uh, we're still friendly. Um, her, she works in, in, in real estate and all the agents are 1099. You can call them gig workers so that they can keep their headcount low enough and not, not fall under FMLA. And they fired her when she went on bed rest with the kids. So there's all sorts of ways that unless you have money and you can go hire a lawyer or you have money and you can hit that deductible, it is not as uh, high in the sky. And if we had single payer, we could eliminate some of the, all the um, middleware, uh, but middleware's jobs, according to all these insurance companies. So um, I'll, I'll kind of leave it there and uh, say there's, there's a lot of holes in the Swiss cheese and, I am not neutral on the subject. So, so what's really interesting here is we talked about one aspect of it, right? And we already heard significant sort of uh, conversation around gig workers, how potentially being a gig worker, and I want to be very clear, the data in JAMA was um, largely retrospective. It was looking at the, it was essentially a prevalent study uh, or incident study, sorry. And they were looking at what are the behaviors of gig workers. Um, they didn't do a nationwide evaluation. Uh, so, you know, pretty limited, not the greatest level of evidence, but evidence nonetheless. And the first set of evidence around social determinants of health uh, uh, and gig workers. The one thing that's interesting about this is how does this change practice? And I think that's a question that we have to really grapple with, which is one, and I'm going to go to Erica uh, since she's at the VA and uh, actively practicing. I want to make sure that Erica gets a word in here around social determinants of health. There's been a lot of talk, Erica, uh, and I hope you're there. But, uh, you know, I was going to say there's been a lot of talk around social determinants of health, how we know that 80% of your healthcare outcomes are determined by your social determinants and not your clinical determinants. Um, how are we, are we actually recording these things? Like, do you actually put in the medical record note that somebody is a veteran and a gig worker? I mean, like, are, are these things that we're doing today? Um, are you able to hear me? Okay. Yes, we can. Um, so employment status goes into the notes, but it's not captured, particularly in our current record, you know, CPRS, um, it's not captured in our problem list which is where it would get like smoking history is captured, you know, or homelessness is captured um, as a diagnostic code. 
But um, as far as I know, there's no ICD-9 code for gig work. <laughs> I mean, ICD-10, ICD sorry, I just aged myself. Um, yeah. ICD-10 code for um, gig work. Um, and so it wouldn't be captured like really anywhere in the data sets, right, we, that we collect, which is a huge number of data sets within the VA. Um, but there's no place to capture it. So like on an individual level, I would know it. Um, again, I mostly see old pa older patients, so I'm mostly doing geriatrics, but in primary care clinic, like a, prim a PCP would know it about their patient, but not on a, a wholesale level. Um, and we have no way to sort of capture that data until it becomes a diagnostic code. And with the transition to Cerner, um, so much of that data is going to be lost because the problem lists are not going to transition easily. They're going to have to be recreated. Um, and so it's interesting to think about that if this is a significant social determinant of health, we need a code for it, really, if we're going to track it. Um, I can't think of another way that it would be tracked or could be modified in any way um, if, if it's not, you know, coded for. I don't know what if anybody about, else has another idea. What about like occupation? like an occupation status. As of right now, I think that would be like the only other proxy where you can enter an occupation. Yeah, so we don't, don't have a place in our record, in our current version of, you know, like our old CPRS record where we can enter occupation um, other than in our notes. So it'd be like a manual chart review that somebody would have to do. I mean, we put in a social history. Obviously in Cerner or Epic, there are lines for occupation, but it's still, it would have to be like a drop-down list, right? You'd have to have a selection to be able to pick it. So just to make sure that everybody else kind of understands what we're talking about, what, what, what Erica is referring to is we have structured data in the medical record and we have unstructured data in the medical record. So there are, uh, you know, uh, there are areas where it is explicit and discreet hey, this person is a gig worker that you could put in that then can be tracked across the medical record. And then there's something that you could put in the narrative, like a 27-year-old male, a gig worker, veteran, all of these things that we put in. It's really hard today in the way the medical records are set up, which again, can go to a whole new conversation. We're not going to go there, okay? But <laughs> the way that they're set up, that you can't actually get out of the narrative and be able to mine that data incredibly well. There are companies that are working on that, but it's not easy to do. And so... You know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge in healthcare. And Erica is completely right, which is if you don't measure it and if you don't track it, then it's as if it never existed. <laughs> and that's how healthcare in the U.S. works. And so, you know, this is a huge, I think we're going to see more and more articles around this. I, you know, uh, um, I think, you know, this, this whole concept of gig working being a potential social determinant of health, I think we should continue to watch out for it. It's, it's to give you guys some context, uh, HVAC workers, being an HVAC worker, for example, uh, for a long time until we fixed some of the national regulations around asbestos and other things, uh, was a huge social determinant of health. And we were tracking it in many different ways because it is connected to things like mesothelioma and other things like that. Just like that, if gig working is connected to high levels of smoking, high levels of stress, uh, 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 lack of access to care because you don't have insurance, or if you do have insurance, it's really high premium. So now there's financial stress. What, I'm, what, what I think we're going to try to move towards in healthcare 
I think it's going to happen. I hope it's going to happen is that we're going to move away from the organ systems model, which is what we've been doing for God knows how long to a determinants model, social determinants of health, clinical determinants of health, financial determinants of health and other types of things. I think these, these things are really going to take over. I'm, I'm really excited for this move that's happening right in front of us. And I think that we're going to see some of this. Donish, when was this data set from? Uh, last year. So I guess the other thing to think about is just like, as we have been privileged to use these gig workers as essentially frontline work in the economy, right? Like they have done the work that some of us have chosen not to do, right? Having our groceries delivered, having our food delivered, having um, not being out in, in shopping. And so they, they also then likely were exposed to COVID in ways that the rest of us were protecting ourselves from. So I think in, and then they didn't have insurance and then they- Uber had a policy. Can I I speak to that? Uber immediately announced a policy, speaking firsthand, um, that if you contracted COVID, they would give you an average of your prior six weeks wages, which was a, a huge thing that Uber was doing. I will give them credit for that. That if you were to contract it, they they put something in place that you had to show a positive test and all that other stuff. I, none of it applied. I'm sure they've scaled it back with all the changes in the way they've scaled back ten days to five days. I don't know, but um, and with vaccination, that was way pre-vaccination. That was April or May of 2020. However, they they aren't set up to to provide healthcare. And I, I just reverse engineer what the social determinant of health is here. If you're working in the gig economy, you're one of two people in the K-shaped recovery. You're doing it out of pleasure, choices, options, or you're probably doing it out of who's new, who's your Uber driver. Probably someone who makes less than you, probably a lot of things. But it's probably it's got a distribution. There will be people that will sign up for Uber to do the minimum. If you say if you do six rides a week, which is way too little, um, you qualify for this kind of subsidy, it becomes gamified. Uber has gamified it on the other side of the spectrum. They, I have, they, they stack different incentives to make you have to work damn near full time to get an extra $200 that week or that half of the week and another another $150 the other three days on the weekend because there's two seasons to a week. If you want to know the social determinants of health and how – think of – I've done this long enough. It's more like a study in what it's like to be a taxi driver than anything else because the market determines when you work. You don't have choices. There's a a rhythm, a cycle to the day before COVID. People go into work and then they go home. And on the weekends, they go out, they party, and then they need rides home. The the whole reason people gamified it is that to be out at 2 a.m., to have enough people out at 2 a.m., Uber plays all these tricks that puts you over a barrel that in order to get that last incentive, you have to take a three-trip series that keeps you captive and you can't do lift over here or take a, a grub hub over there. Um, I, I don't deal with all these stresses, but I'm aware of them. And it is very, very, it's stress. If you just measure people's stress. And the last comment I would make is the IRS has your SIC code. They know what people's gig, gig economies are. You could cross-reference this data if you wanted to. Who wants to know the information? Just like when you consult with a school, if you find out that there's a maniac in your school, what are you going to do about it? If you get a bunch of data that says you have 
15%, which is true in all schools, 15% terrible teachers. What are you going to do with it? So are we prepared as a society, as an intelligent group, maybe here on Clubhouse, we can start having these conversations with these horrible, dark conversations about what do you do with the, the, the other side of the bell curve? So I'll kind of leave it there. That's a lot. And, and really, David just made a great point on the SIC code because I'm pretty sure that a uh, gig worker is not an SIC code. So that if you're a Uber Uber driver, you're probably putting on your tax. Uber gives you TurboTax for free, and everybody's using TurboTax, and everybody goes through that process, and everybody's labeling it as something. You could catch capture the data, Ken, for sure. No, 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 no. Let me finish. I, I wasn't disputing you. I was agreeing with yeah, you. No, I no, I, I didn't that, think you were disputing you, me. Sorry. You needed to use an SIC code because whatever the classification when you do TurboTax, whether you put down Uber driver or painter or whatever you put down, the reason I say that is technically, um, you know, we talk about gig workers or people who are working for themselves is anybody who gets a 1099. So somebody who runs a catering business that does $10 million in annual revenue is getting 1099s from their clients. That's very different than someone who's driving for Uber. So if you, if, if you wanted to use a classification for you know this medical thing, you have to get to a larger level of granularity of what they actually do than just that they're, they get paid through a 1099. That's my only point. No, that's helpful. So, okay, so I wanted to move to the next story uh, uh, and mention, uh, Vinay just sent me this in the back channel. It's a great, uh, sort of potential solution, but again, we're, we're very skeptical. So Vinay, I'm going to let you share the story if he's still here. Oh, he had to jump off. All right. So in India, uh, they actually, for people that don't know, India is going through <laughs> probably the most, uh, incredible tech renaissance that we've seen in real time. Every week, there's a new unicorn. This company, Gig Vistas, actually has partnered with Alive Health uh, to launch a uh, comprehensive health plan for 8 million gig economy professionals. And, uh, you know, uh, since Vinay's not here, we're not going to go too deep into it. But, you know, gig economy work has been a lifeline in India in the middle of the pandemic. It is growing, you know, uh, really fast. And if anybody, if you don't know what's happening in India right now, uh, and by the way, not just India, you're seeing this in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, all of that entire subcontinent is on, is, is, uh, is on a roll right now. Um, and we're seeing incredible opportunities happening because again, the pandemic accelerated some of it, but also the, the fact that they have services that are needed on the ground and now they have ways to do this um you're going to see this continue but this what they're doing there with this startup i'm surprised that we're not seeing here in the u.s and i think it's largely being driven by the the points that ken and evan and david were making around not only around the affordable care act but also around the fact that regulations it's easier to do these types of things in healthcare in india because there's a, a much smaller set of regulations that they have to deal with as compared to people trying to start health insurance sure. plans in the US. Yeah, and then Dr. Donish, I was just gonna read a section from the uh, article. I'm, I'm at the airport, but hopefully everyone can hear me. So if you actually look at this, you can see that all members of Gig Vista are able to purchase comprehensive and affordable health coverage that start at 999 rupees for the whole year 
and are between 40 to 70% cheaper uh, than similar products. And these plans offer benefits that cover up to 30 lakhs. Um, that are, you know, 30 lakhs is, I think, equivalent to like, you know, at least a couple hundred thousand, if not a million. Um, yeah, not dollars, so a lakh is 100,000, yeah. I believe, or 10,000, sorry. Yeah, 10, exactly. I don't know. Exactly. So it's covering not just them, but it's also their family. Um, and again, 8 million people. So that's a lot. Uh, so pretty impressive. Uh, I was just reading the details and it looks pretty, pretty impressive. So um, uh, now that we've realized that other countries are going to solve these problems faster than we are, let's move on to a problem that our country did a pretty, pretty crappy <laughs> job of, which is, which is Elizabeth Holmes. Um, so let's walk through what's happened in the last two weeks. Again, remember, we have been out of uh, 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 unavailable for the last two weeks. And so we're going to be catching up to some news that might seem like it was, a, you know, uh, ages ago. But, you know, Elizabeth Holmes' trial verdict only came out in a, a week or so ago, I believe. I don't even remember anymore. But the point is, she was found guilty <laughs> for, uh, for uh, fraud of investors, but not, four of the 11 verdicts were, were guilty, but not found guilty for defrauding patients. And it's a very interesting set, you know, we're learning a lot about who holds power in this country, uh, but I do, you know, clearly it's investors. Uh, but, you know, I, I do think it's important to, to speak for, so for people that don't know about the Elizabeth Holmes trial, it was around Theranos, uh, Theranos claimed to have this new technology and claimed to be using this new technology with patients actively when it was leaked, uh, uh, actually by the grandchild, I believe, of one of the investors, uh, uh, that uh, they were actually using third-party machines to do this. Um, and in reality, the quality of the results was not, was not correct. And so patients were getting results that were actually incorrect as well. I was doing a little bit more research on this. There's actually a lot of... Uh, uh, as you look into, uh, in preparation for today, I was looking into how the trial was actually communicated. And it appears that the, the main point that was being made was knowledge of, so known defrauding. Uh, and would love to get some of the experts, Ken and others, to kind of speak to how fraud against a group of people is, is actually determined. So it, it's, it's prior knowledge of was probably one of the biggest areas. So she had prior knowledge of the fact that she was using third party, third party machines to do this. What she did not have prior knowledge of was the quality of the data. And I think that's where this decision was made. And it was it was really left there. But to give you some context of how powerful uh, the people that uh, the investors who, by the way, won uh, were, we're talking about Henry Kissinger, we're talking about the DeVos family, we're talking about uh, some of the biggest names uh, in Don't forget politics. George Schultz because it was his grandson that blew the whistle. And George, jo Schultz. George Schultz was the guy who got all of the other investors effectively. Not that he, not that he actively solicited them, but his, his reputation was so sterling that he was able to get so many other people involved. And it's it's fascinating because you know first I wanted to speak to the decision and the, and the verdict. Again, nobody on stage, I believe is a legal expert so i don't i don't want to i mean oh suzanne i guess is, is suzanne up here yes suzanne is here but i don't know if you do litigation of these types of cases but i'd love to get a little bit more specific around what drove this verdict if people have been keeping track of it i'd love to hear from you is there somebody that wants to 
walk and before that. people jump in i also want to recommend um bad blood if you haven't read that book it's by john Carew. it details this whole thing and he was the journalist who actually broke the story initially for the wall street times uh, and i also wanted to mention she was found not guilty on the four counts for patients and then there were also three counts for which the jury did not reach a verdict and i think uh holmes's team is going to demand a mistrial for those all that to say out of the 11 counts she was found guilty on four each of those has a maximum sentence of 20 years, which I think they're expecting her to serve uh, concurrently. And then on top of all of that, um, it's just interesting because this is usually unheard of. It's it's very tough to prosecute a CEO in Silicon Valley. And so this is actually one of the first few cases uh, where it's been successful. So just wanted to provide that background information. Hey, hey Parak, they, they can't demand um, a mistrial on those, those three counts because by definition, that is a mistrial. They didn't reach a verdict. The decision whether to retry the case is usually in the hands of the prosecutor, unless for some reason the judge wants to preclude it. So, I mean, mo most mo in most cases, it's whether the prosecutor wants to, you know, to, to try them again. By definition, though, if you're not acquitted and you're not convicted, you've got a mistrial. And so, you know, let's, let's think through this together. There's a huge challenge that health tech startups face. I think I mentioned this on another stage for Tech News. And I wanted to bring that up in significant detail because this is something that we're seeing right now in a trend that as, as you know, we are usually joined by investors who are out there investing in these startups. We're joined by operators that are working at high levels uh, in these startups. Um, and uh, full disclosure, I run a health tech startup uh, and we are venture backed. So we are all, we also have investors that we have to answer to. And, being in the space, I can tell you, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again, there's this huge challenge. There is this fight that every, not just the founders, but every member of a, a startup team has to fight, which is there are two competing forces in healthcare and health tech. One is the healthcare, which is do no harm. And the other is the tech side, which is move fast and break things. And you know, uh, walking that tightrope, it, it, it's not easy because, you know, just to kind of be clear about what I mean by that, the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm. And the, 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 the Facebook old saying was, you know, move fast and break things. And, and that is a very important part of it. I want to explain what I mean by that. What I mean by that is you don't, if you're going out to the market with a product that is fully fledged out, uh, you know, fledged out and it's perfect. And it works exact, and you are a product market fit from like the first moment that you put that product in the market. You actually waited too long. That's how it works in normal tech. Fake it till you make it is a real thing in tech. And what I mean by that is what the customer is seeing is an experience, but they don't know the inner workings of how that customer experience is actually being put together. And that's normal. That's actually how it should be in tech, in, in traditional tech. Now, in health tech, you're taking care of patients. And so everything changes. And there's actually, the easiest way to think about it is if the delivery driver is six minutes late, right, you don't die. But if somebody gets the wrong diagnosis or if somebody uh, messes up something or if there's bias that's put into the tech or if there's other issues because they're iterating. They're just learning right now. It's just an early stage tech company. They're just learning. It affects 
you know, people and their lives with an inelastic good like health. And so this is a huge challenge that health tech needs to have. And by the way, guess what? I've never heard a VC take the Hippocratic Oath, <laughs> right? So you have the investors who have no, um, you know, they're looking at, obviously, they don't want, you know, they, they care about whether you're malicious, they care about whether you're doing the right things, they care about whether you're actively defrauding people, all these things that exists in every business. But when it comes to, hey, do we have clinical outcomes to prove that what we're doing is going to help people? Do we have, uh, have we tested the product so that, you know, it never has any issues? That's not something that is in the tech mindset, even health tech mindset. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because this is a problem that is going to have ripple effects. Theranos is the worst of them, probably. Theranos <laughs> is the one that is going to be the poster child, probably. We're not going to see that much more of this, I don't think. I think a lot of people are probably going back and saying, holy crap. But you know, when you can go online, answer a questionnaire, and take a medicine that, by the way, if you answered untruthfully or you answered um you know even truthfully but unknowingly could actually hurt you which by the way is like a lot of medications that are out there even something as benign as finasteride can have awful impact on you right for hair loss it can have awful impact on you if you have some underlying condition that you might not even know that might require some level of a pre pre-evaluation from a physician right now you can just go online put it in they'll send you the meds they'll send you uh, you know, sildenafil, they'll ch send you whatever medication you want because it's consumer driven. And we're seeing all of this. None of that has data at the largest level, right? And so we're not really fighting that battle right now. And I think there's going to be incredible ripple effects of this. Would love to hear from, from, from the people on stage around, how do you actually fight this problem? Because there's no simple way. I don't think it's as simple. I know it sounds like, of course, we should be testing people. Of course, we should be testing companies and making sure that they're not doing harm. But some of the companies that you that, that are in our heads that we all know about are not doing that at all. How do we actually fight that problem? Does anybody have any thoughts? I mean, one thing, um, can you hear me? Yes. If you can hear me. So one thing that I'm thinking is, um, there has to be some sort of balance between at least the digital health aspect or any healthcare startup and the other startups that don't deal directly with patient care, in my opinion. It just seems very um, odd to me that some, someone whose startup, like, doc, like yours, Dr. Donish, uh, when you're ending up dealing with patients, um, there, there's obviously a little bit, well, from your perspective, do you notice that there's more bureaucracy um, for your startup than any other startup in terms of like finding a way to merge into healthcare? Um, or is it different or is it similar to like other startups when you're going out there for VC funding and like talking about the legal implications of what you're doing? I can tell you that most people don't ask questions about clinical outcomes. So most of the investors don't. So it gives you a sense of there are compliance requirements that exist uh, that we have to meet. A lot of those have to do around corporate practice of medicine, not around the actual medicine that's being practiced. We have internal metrics that we use uh, because, you know, uh, it's important to us and, and we're very much focused on clinical outcomes. But I can tell you right now, uh, people, aren't, people aren't really looking at, again, that dichotomy between 
you know, are we doing harm versus are we moving fast enough? And I think that that's, that's something that, you know, prereq, I know it sounds good in theory, but when, think about it this way, I can tell you a story real quick and it's going to help you understand. There's a startup that I know that said our biggest selling point is that we're going to have clinical data to prove that what we're doing is going to improve outcomes. And they were building that startup. They put together clinical workflows that actually improved outcomes. They published broadly. And then there was another startup that literally would just go and build tools and provide them and, and just sell, 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 sell. And guess which one won? It, slow and steady doesn't one. win the race. Yeah, <laughs> slow and steady doesn't yep. win the race in startups. And, and that's the honest, honest truth. I, I'm telling you, I know it sounds like, holy crap, is that really true? 100%. 100% that's true. What you do in these startups is that you try to cover your own butt by meeting compliance requirements, you know, having the adequate separation of medicine and the corporation, having, you know, people that you can say, hey, these are the people that are overseeing these things. But are, is there a culture of first do no harm? I can tell you a lot of the biggest startups that are out there in health tech are not doing that at all, at all. At least that's my perception. Um, and what I've heard and what I've seen from their actions. And so, you know, that's the evidence for me. Uh, but, you know, would love to hear from others as well. If anybody has a comment, great. If yeah. not, we're going to move on from this. Yeah, Dr. Yeah, I just make one, very, one quick comment. Uh, um, I could probably make several, but just one on, on, on that particular case. One of the things that she got convicted of uh, had nothing to do with the technology. It had to do with her, uh, let's just call it misrepresenting that she had um, a contract, I think it may have been with uh, Pfizer or, or, or some other pharmaceutical company, but she didn't have. And they, 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 they showed like a, a, a presentation that we're going to have $40 million in revenue from some sort of contract with some other healthcare provider. Um, and, that, and, and the whole thing didn't exist. They just made it up. So that had nothing to do with the technology. It, just, it was just plain fraud. You know, it was a garden variety fraud situation, and that's why she got convicted. Well, it was a, a misrepresentation at best and fraud at worst. And I mean, it's like obviously nailed it on several of the counts were specific to certain investors that used the evidence that they had at hand to say, look, it was more than just a flashy PowerPoint slide that showed uh, logos, you know, of a you know, partner entities. And this was true of uh, her kind of saying that they had the quote unquote potential to be working with DOD or, or VA or what have you versus actually having something solidified. And as Donna suggested, I mean, anybody in fundraising mode with startup tech, I mean, this is pervasive. It happens all day, every day where, you know, we have flashy slide decks and you just, you kind of couch your language a little bit around, you know, potential partnerships and whether something is a legit contract yet or not is, is sort of like, if someone doesn't raise their hand, let's not address that, right? So there's a lot of that that happens in the space that's questionable. Um, but one thing I, I just wanted to raise on this is like the four of the counts, maybe five of the counts that were that were um, the prosecutors uh, leveraged against Elizabeth Holmes uh, would not have even been in play were it not for 
um, and I'll, I'll just call out Walgreens as the low hanging fruit. There was more than just Walgreens, but Walgreens was the first one, um, had signed on to deploy this technology into a consumer or commercial setting. And if that hadn't happened, you, you know, the investors could still go after her for fraud. Ultimately, if the tech um, just wasn't the tech, right? Like she just ended up saying like, well, we're going to bandaid our way through this with a third party contractor and just not say anything. I mean, obviously the whole thing is just gross, right? But I mean, you have companies of that caliber and that um, breadth of consumer penetration signing on to Theranos and opening up Theranos branded clinics. I mean, there's some responsibility there on the on those those organizations and those companies as well. And so I'm I'm just curious of like what you I mean you're just kind of this radio silence, right, for many of these guys. And I can see the it's like let's just let this thing die and go deeper into the ground. But it's it's kind of terrifying how all of that played out. You had a very senior CEO of Walgreens who was just enamored of this young woman with a flashy idea and couldn't resist. Um, and this is very well documented in the book. Um, but I, I wonder if this is a, a, you know, a warning sign for other uh, big companies, big healthcare companies, vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, attractive small startups that have a what sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I, I um, and just to make a quick comment to follow follow up on Edward. Um, I totally agree. I, I mean, given my experience in Silicon Valley as well, I noticed that some venture capitalists and investors are much more concerned with financial risk and not too concerned with technical risk. And I think what this case with Elizabeth Holmes has brought to the fore is the need to have a balance when assessing risk because you need to assess both and um like like edward mentioned the the book bad blood by john carreru which is an amazing book by the way you know goes in detail and explains just the level of neglect and oversight by what are seasoned venture capitalists in the industry so i think in the healthcare sector there now has to be an emphasis on assessing technical risk as well as financial risk. And I feel the engineers and the finance analysts are now, now have to work and collaborate better, you know, as opposed to just the emphasis being on the financial analysts. And that's, that's something that I've noticed and I think will change moving forward. Well, perhaps the, I mean, I'll, I'll just say this from my perspective as having a, a, a med tech startup, right? And they, and this is something I probably wouldn't have been able to point out even a couple of years ago, but there's definitely a different um, uh, level of due diligence. I'll just say like top line due diligence between this, this fine but ever blurrier line between health tech and med tech. Um, if you're creating a legit medical device that is, you know, is a 510k clear type device, right? I think the investors that generally go into that space have a different sort of bar and level set as to what is expected. They have a um, certainly a, a different expectation with regard to your turnaround time and when 
you're in R&D, when you're in clinical trials, when you're moving into phase two, when you're going to be able to get your FDA clearance, all of that is like there's there's no pathway to success for a medical device or a drug um, until you're cleared, right? Until you get through all those regulatory hurdles. And we're, they're sort of like pre-geared to understand that. They're still interested in speed to market, but it's quite different from a lot of the digital health and the health tech investors that are just like, hey, just build that app and maybe there's some like low regulatory bar, but maybe there's not. And let's just get this thing out there into the world. And um, I, I think there's a little confusion between the two, but I do believe that there is a, a continues to be a different level of scrutiny and in a good way for uh, a certain level of med tech and biotech. Yeah, no, I think, uh, and, and, and to be clear, what was really fascinating about this case to Lawrence's point is that, you know, people that know Draper VC know how reputable they are. Um, but I will say that the large, large majority of the investors in Theranos were non-Silicon Valley. And this problem is pervasive through the entire venture capital industry. Uh, but, I, but I do agree that it did help to have one of the most notable VCs in the game uh, be a lead of one of your early rounds. I think that makes a huge difference. And, you know, uh, so I just wanted to clarify that specific point. Yeah, but Dr. Danish, if you read the history, even Tim Draper was supposedly or is a friend of her father and gave some of the seed money. So I'm guessing, and this is pure uh, conjecture and guesswork here, that the due diligence that was done wasn't like, equivalent to as if it was a pitch deck and all of that that was happening right so yeah it wasn't no, series I, a series b series c yeah exactly uh, yeah no 100 and just so people know the differences and again we have a very broad audience so i want to make sure that so for people that don't know how this works there's a lot of different phases of a startup when startups are getting started they're just an idea on a napkin a lot of times what they're betting on what the investors are betting on is do you have a network do you know how to execute? And are you a founder that has the ability to be able to take something and will it into existence at the, the earliest stages? And I don't care what anybody says, that stage needs to exist. <laughs> that is probably one of the most important stages for any startup. And Wait, Dr. Donish, yeah. can, I, can I ask a question? Do you then sure. think like um, George Schultz, who was that Secretary of State, who kind of was such a big believer in um, Elizabeth, I think a lot of other investors were. Do you think he and um, other investors who kind of w were serving as a momentum picker-upper should equally, not equally, but at least be partly responsible in terms of this this thing? Um, so the way that aspect? it works, the way that it works, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on which side you sit on, is you have you you're, when you're running a company at that scale, you have a board, and the board primarily owns fiduciary, you know, has fiduciary and other responsibilities as directors on your board. Okay, so that's how it works on the on the business side of things. But what we do is we get something called VE&O insurance. Um, and there's a lot of different names of it, but that's one name. And that's a director insurance. So what you do is you limit the liability for the people who are directors as much as you can, because a lot of these people sit on a lot of different boards. And I also want to be very clear that in the lawsuit, what was pointed out is that 
you know, that, uh, and, and this is not unusual, just to be clear, is that the directors never really went out to the field and saw the equipment uh, and looked through the data at a deep enough level to be able to determine this. And that's not unusual for a large company. I mean, to give you some context, there are independent board members for companies like Amazon and others, that there's no way they're going out to the warehouses to do evaluations, right? Like that, that would be absolutely untenable for a board member. And so, you know, I, I do want to be very careful about, you know, saying, oh, all these other people that supported this are wrong. They were straight up lied to, too. I mean, like, there's no doubt that they were lied to, that the numbers that they were shown, Definitely. the clinical data they were shown. I'm sorry? I just said, yeah, I totally agree. They were totally lied to. So it's just, it's just very challenging. And I, again, no sympathy, okay? Uh, uh, no, no sympathy here. But I do think we should have a level of empathy, right? They're like, hey, it's a very difficult job at that level for a company that's growing that quickly that has not just, again, it wasn't just her. There was an entire team of people in the, in the, in the leadership team that knew this was happening, that were executing on this plan, and at some level had brainwashed themselves to say, hey, we're going to fake it till we make it. We're going to make it. This is us. This is our moonshot. We'll get there. But right now, people have expectations. And let's execute on that. Well, I hope you get very some clear. serious jail time because I heard a number of legal analysts talking about how she might just end up with four, five, six, seven, eight years in prison despite the big uh, up, you know, potential sentencing given the reality of the legal system and whatever, you know, final. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. On, it, people are calling this a Silicon Valley case, and it's not Silicon Valley, because as you said, um, Dr. Dr. Danish, all, the investors were a bunch of, like, basically ex-military people, right? It's, it's George Schultz and a lot of their cronies. There wasn't any Silicon Valley money there, but um, and, and Draper, who they do try to bring in, it was a little bit of his personal money. It wasn't his fund, and that's because his daughter was friends with her. But um, again, they're not going to... The, the, they don't have a responsibility to go out and look at this stuff in order to uh, what they're saying to the public, but they do have their own responsibility to look at it before they invest. So what happened is she got, you know, one person's buy-in and it, you got a bunch of herd mentality with people with a lot of money that just want to believe in this, right? So they don't, I mean, I would not uh, analogize this to like Amazon board going out and looking at the warehouses it was absolutely just herd mentality. None of these guys looked at it. They all just listened to her. And the other um, interesting factor there, I mean, if you look at some of the older interviews with her, think about the um, her hypnotic effect and her way of working with the families. I mean, you know, the whole Steve Jobs things, but really look at her. Like if you look at Scott Adams, who does a lot of hyp hypnosis and how you can um, influence people. I mean, I've been following this for a long time and I'm actually friends with people at the SEC on this one. And I find this whole thing insane. Like insane, except that um, SEC uh, Silicon Valley has a ton of this kind of shit going on, like like way beyond fake it till you make it, and people aren't doing their diligence. And so the the board, I have no um, you know sympathy for. They should have done their diligence, but the the how far this went and the people that it harmed is is unfortunate. I'm guessing. Just to be clear, I'm, though, Francine, oh, wow. one second. I was going to just respond to Jennifer, and I want to come to you. So what I was going to say is. Jennifer, that sounds great in theory right now uh, that, you know, these investors should be at the earth. Again, just to be very, very clear, Tim Draper invested in the seed, not in a series A, not in a series B, not in any further. So at the seed stage, there was 
none of this occurring. At the seed stage, it was a moonshot idea that she was building towards. So I just want to be very clear that yes, people should be doing their diligence. Of course, people should be doing their diligence. But has anybody been watching the momentum and velocity of deals happening in the last year? Exactly. I can tell you right now, I can t- tell you right now that that sounds wonderful. But if I get a term sheet from one investor, right? And I get term sheet from one investor and the other one's doing a bunch of diligence and they're both equally reputable and equally valuable to me. I'm going to take the term sheet that's in front of me instead of wasting time. And I think that this <laughs> Dr. is an Dr. important- Dr. totally true. But... Sorry, go just on, really quick. So what, uh, a last point that I was going to make, and I want, I want to give you a chance to respond, then we'll go to Francine, is the velocity has actually gotten faster since those days. So we're actually going to see more of this. That's the only point that I wanted to make is that you're right, that there should be more diligence occurring. But I can tell you right now, you go out to the market, you try to raise money. And if you have enough traction, you will have a term sheet probably in a few weeks, if that. And I think that's an important distinction. Sorry, Jennifer, go ahead. 100% agree. So 100% agree. And I'm hearing that, you know, I'm hearing that as well. And that's what's going on. Um, the, the problem here is that that's exacerbating what's going on here, which is that people, there, there's a lot of this fraud going on. I mean, it's, it is fraud. It's not fake until you make it. It's beyond that. And so it was hoping that this case would have some sort of an impact, even though it was not Silicon Valley investors. This this company, I think, started around 2014. It was way, you know, much earlier. So this, this was well before this current velocity. And yes, agree with you that this velocity and the money that's flying around right now, it, they're not even looking into companies. It is absolutely this, um, you know, lack of diligence, etc. Absolutely. Francine wanted to give you a chance to weigh in. Well, my theory is that in most cases, and again, I've done a lot of coaching of startups, and I know it's faster now, but in all the coaching of startups that I've done and all of the board, unless the board has a member for whom this is a passion, who really understands it and knows it, the board is a bunch of door openers and if you're lucky, they read the material that is sent to them before um, the board meeting. And whether they know how to interpret, you know, when you talk about doing due diligence, there's levels and levels of due diligence. And there should be somebody on the board who is a product expert or more than one person who is a product expert. But there's the other people are like lawyers, accountants, rich businessmen, you know, people who can open doors to customers. So you're ne- yes, there's a lot of fraud in Silicon Valley, and there and there always has been a lot of um, a lot of fraud and fake it till you make it, and that's why every once in a while people commit suicide. Um, but but again. The job of the board isn't really to run the company. It's to um, hold the CEO accountable and the C-suite accountable. And in order to hold the C-suite accountable, you have to have somebody, at least one somebody, that has product knowledge. And the way a lot of companies, and, and I don't know if this is true in the last two years, Donish, but before the last two years, what they used to do was have a separate medical advisory board. And that board was full of people who understood um, this, the space and the product and everything. And those people were not allowed to commingle with, the, or they just didn't commingle with the fiduciary board members. 
I will say to the ones that do have medical advisory boards, uh, outside of resilient, of course, uh, the ones that do have medical advisory boards are spending more of their time uh, feeding, uh, you know, updates and trying to get uh, the medical advisors to also open doors uh, and not get as much feedback on product. I wish people would do that more. And I will uh, show off and do a shameless plug that we do that quite a lot, <laughs> but uh, wanted to uh, also mention that medical advisory boards can be are only as effective as you as, as you're mentioning, Francine, as as as, uh, uh, as you allow them to be as a founder. But you're absolutely right that I, I will say uh, the last point I wanted to make on this is I think there's a huge difference between fake it till you make it and fraud. Um, and and what I mean by that is in tech, fake it till you make it really to me represents, hey, you want to get this problem solved. We solve this problem. You don't know what's happening behind the black box, but we're getting it done. And every single time it works to solve that problem, you just don't know how it's being done. Whereas fraud is saying that something is getting done when it's not actually getting done. And I want to be very clear that, you know, uh, the how versus the what is a huge difference. Right. And, and I, I wanted to make that distinction before we moved on. Um, so and one, one completely use, useless point of trivia, just maybe on a footnote. She, she, Theranos <laughs> taught herself not to blink. She, she studied Steve Jobs, and, and she had this belief that she could like dominate people's mental state by staring and not blinking. So maybe that's a skill we should all like learn. No, she, she did that. She also did all that voice deepening stuff. I, I want to just zero back in on, okay, this was, again, this was not Silicon Valley investors. So even though it, it is a great model case, the other one um, to, to Dr. Um, I think I missed the earlier point, which is, I don't think that this board had the duty to run the company and hold her accountable. I, I agree with Dr. Francine's point on this, but her board was a lot of her investors and they do have a, if they're going to invest, I have no sympathy for them for not doing their own due diligence on the company, right? They never saw the technology, um, et cetera. And, um, the, and, and there's a big difference. I agree. You know, there's fake it till you make it. And how far can you take that? This was absolute fraud. I mean, this was, um, you know, completely taking tests somewhere else and having them done, putting down customer names that didn't exist. Um, it, it's amazing that it got this far and that the hope was that this her being convicted would be assigned to Silicon Valley because it, it, it's out of hand here. I mean, I'm here. I work in it. I worked at a company that was fraudulent. I mean, the, it really is those stories that people tell and people are like, oh, it can't be that bad or that must be an exaggeration. It's not. Silicon Valley is insane. So I'm, I'm hoping that more people are held um, that you know, this, this would be a good example for people, but apparently it's, it's not bad enough and it, it, they don't see it as being um, something that will slow this, um, as you said, not lack No, that's of because she's capacity. a girl, a woman, and she'll, right? be, she'll be sacrificed off as a human sacrifice and yep. they'll be able to say, oh, if this had been a man, it never would have happened and it'll go right on the way it always has. Is the business still completely enamored of the pretty young woman or guy with the flashy idea. What if everybody in this drama were 10 years older? And I wonder if that's actually happening in the business now. A, a new emphasis on experience may count some more than we thought. So no, no, be because you're not, you're not going back again. This isn't going to make an impact. And if you see the amount of Stanford grads, I mean, that's the, you know, in, in the credentials they have here, that's the big deal. So, um, yeah, pretty young founder hope, you know, 
big idea. I think her professor at Stanford was one of her original, um, you know, someone that supported her and that probably looked good and got her the introductions. But, um, and yes, I mean, it, it does a lot. I don't think that this is going to, it's, it's not impacting Silicon Valley. The, the thought is, the current belief is that this will not impact Silicon Valley in a positive way, that it will so, not. So, yeah. So I wanted to make sure uh, we're going we're gonna, to uh, move on to the next topic. The one thing, Edward, I want to be very careful about is we want to be very careful about who she was versus what she did. And what's happened in Silicon Valley, to be completely honest, and not just Silicon Valley, I want to be clear. To be completely honest, the concept of Silicon Valley now being the seat or the throne of the venture capital world, uh, I can tell you not only does that not really ring true as much anymore as it did, you know, uh, 10 years ago when this happened, it's, it's absolutely not the case right now. A lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of investors range from all over the country. We're seeing a huge birth in Miami and New York and, and Chicago and other places. So I want to be very clear about that. The one thing that's interesting, though, to your point, is that Silicon Valley does tend to be, as compared to the other investors that are out there, uh, a little bit uh, more fond of the young founder uh, that is a little bit less experienced because they've seen that formula work before. And, you know, I want to be clear, you know, uh, what VCs do incredibly well, and we have to give them credit if they see patterns. You know, you see hundreds of decks a week and you see these patterns and the patterns continue to emerge the reason why stanford graduates get so much money is because they've been successful across the board when you look there's a bunch of different stuff that's come out around this but you know it's it's the way that they're trained it's the people that they're surrounded by it's a self-fulfilling prophecy they're in the bay area they're in south bay that this is not rocket science in some senses and so you know i just want to be clear that there's a reason why that has existed but but i do want to be very careful about you know bringing in the fact you know like her, her, like, I think we have to be very, very careful about how we characterize her. The reason why, sure, are there good look, is, is there data, right, you know, that we can find easily that startup CEOs that are above a certain height get more, get more funding than others? Google it, you'll find it. <laughs> that people that are objectively better looking tend to have more C-suite roles in corporate America even. Google it, you'll find it. It's a thing. You're absolutely right. But I don't think we should just give it away to that. This is... 100% a case where people came together, they were building on something amazing, they fell under pressure from the fact that this moonshot was really hard to execute, and they chose to lie instead of saying, hey, we need more time. We're having these issues. We're having, you know why people respect Elon Musk so much? It's because he's the first one to send out a, a note to all of his employees saying, man, this is a really hard problem. We're really struggling right now. <laughs> uh, as he did with uh, Starship or whatever. And so, you know, I think that, you know, this is, this is the type of stuff that, that is, it happens so much. It depends. And I think to your point, Edward, having a more mature founder, um, uh, it really helps because what you, what you know at that point, you've had enough life experience at that point is that, hey, the line, it, it, you could clearly draw the line between fake it till you make it and fraud. <laughs> because you, you've you've been in you've been in you know you've been in jobs before where you had to make that decision and there were more senior people who put their hand on your shoulder said I know this is really tough but here's what we should do so yes. I, I, I did I'm so glad you said that and, and 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 maybe your moral compass is a little more calibrated well yeah. for sure but yeah no I'm so glad you said that Danish because I actually had um, someone uh, on our internal 
team at my medical advice startup tell me once to, to stop saying in meetings, even if they weren't formal pitches, it was just like a discussion about what we were building, that this is a really, really hard problem to solve. And that one of our advisory board members, who happens to be the former um, CEO of Medtronic, who came from the ultrasound program at GE. So he's actually technically by root is a kind of an ultrasound nerd and really knows his stuff, right, around imaging. And, and I would say, like, he told us, like, you picked, like, the hardest problem to solve, right? Not just um, automating ultrasound for any patient, but to pick, like, tiny patient, like tiny newborns, you know, hearts and lungs and premature babies and all that. And, and I would share that with some people, um, you know, select, not everybody, not every pitch, not every conversation, but I would say that. And I got kind of yelled at by someone in my team, like, stop saying that, it's freaking people out. And I'm like, I don't care if it's freaking people out. It's the goddamn truth. And it's okay to say that, that we're, we picked a hard problem to solve. And one of the reasons it hasn't been solved yet is because it's hard. And why should we act like that's not the case? I don't know whether we're going to succeed or fail, but like uh, that there's one thing for absolute certainty is that this has been something we've been working on for 10 years and we're not going to give up. So I think it's okay, you know, to say that and not be afraid on Elizabeth Holmes. I, I mean, I had the, whether it was a fortune or misfortune, um, she was invited to speak at a conference, um, I don't know if John Madison is here today, but he was he was probably there too um, in uh, Laguna Niguel. I, I can't remember what year this was, probably 2015 or 16. And I remember very vividly her being on stage with the rest of the diagnostic uh, uh, blood testing like CEOs, right? Um, you know, pick your legacy name of like how three days turnaround and super expensive to do a blood panel on. We're up on stage with her. And it, it she was impressive, you guys. I mean, she really, really could hold her own. And part of the reason people wanted to root from her for her, and she ended up on magazine covers in those early days, and I picked that early days, 14, 15, 16 of Theranos, is because there was a lot of hatred out there for the existing legacy system. So if you, if you find someone that actually can break something that's just kind of universally loathed and disliked and it, it just doesn't offer a, a, a pathway to more efficiency for those using it, and I mean healthcare providers and for patients, I mean, people really, really, really wanted to embrace that. And I remember sitting on the floor outside that conference room with her afterward and this is my my five minutes with elizabeth holmes that i know very probably you know most people would would never have had and it was not really by design she was just out out there at the time when i was out there and i said you know thanks for sharing that i wish for something like this especially for pediatric patients because in that time and still up to this day my daughter goes through so many blood draws and labs in a given year and she said, let me talk. She goes, I really want to hear about what you have to say. And so we sat down and talked about my daughter for five, 10 minutes. I don't remember how long it was. And she really, really listened thoughtfully 
offered some suggestions and said like her one of her biggest hopes was that their technology would be you know immediately scalable into these specialty markets where labs are really really a challenge and that's my just one simple story of like sitting down with elizabeth holmes but i i can tell you i have a pretty good bullshit meter and what i thought at that moment is like this woman really really believes she really believes her technology is going to be transformative and that she's putting together the team that can do it now where it went from that to like holy shit to keep this thing afloat we have to like literally fraudulently take in labs and process labs i don't have any idea when that happened but i don't believe that when i spoke to her that that was the like she was a grifter looking to fraud you know perpetrate fraud on the world and, and I don't know whether on, that's on true that or not. On that point that Anna Marie brought, brought up right now is this is the hardest part, right? To 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 be somebody that believes that you're going to get there, and then to convince yourself that I will do whatever it takes to get there. I think that's what, and I I don't want to put this on anybody but her. She's accountable for her decisions, but I will say the pressure of running a startup. If you don't have that, you know, like like Edward was mentioning matured moral compass, that is really, really, really hard. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you a simple example. Uh, and this is maybe a little bit personal on, the, on my company. When we first started, we were focusing on one vision. And uh, that vision was a really, really hard vision. Um, and we've been working on that for, for a few years. And we got this opportunity. And the first question that we sat in a room and had a conversation around was like, look, there's money on the table that we can focus on. We, uh, we can have this conversation around this. And I'm, I'm doing this again, just so that people understand it's not as simple as you think. And we had to make the decision of saying, hey, first, we need to let all of our investors know that we pivoted to this delivery model, right? Uh, the second thing we had to do was talk about how we were gonna continue on building the R&D side of the company and continue to deliver on our robotic telehealth dreams, but we wanted to focus on something that we could execute today so that we could build the distribution to, to move robotic telehealth to the next level because the traditional legacy health system just frankly does not understand its value. And it was one of the hardest decisions we had to make, but I'm so grateful and I think to Edward's point, it came from the fact that we had this mature maturity to know, hey, and, and I, I will say this very clearly, had Elizabeth Holmes admitted to the fact that the technology wasn't going the way it was, her company would still be alive and they may have reached their pinnacle. I truly believe that because the problem they were solving was a real problem. It was the perfect problem. And the approach that they were taking actually had real promise. If you actually look at the patents that Theranos went and, and, and developed on top of and the technology they were developing on top of, today there are a few companies that, by the way, have had to go through hell to try to raise money because everybody compares them to Theranos, right, uh, that are solving that problem now that technology has progressed. And, uh, you know, a lot of the infrastructure technology that did not exist at that time could have been accelerated by her work, but she chose to lie. Yeah. And that's why she's going to jail. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every founder... You can ask every founder. I know it's like, holy crap, you guys have to make, you know, uh, you know you're sitting there and it's, it's so easy to not be a founder, to not have 
built something from nothing and to say, hey, what she did was so awful. And I'm not saying what she didn't do was awful. What I'm saying is most founders come across those crossroads. And I think and I believe that most founders choose not to lie. But she chose to lie and she got caught. And I think that's that's why she deserves to go to jail. But we're going to move on. Um, uh, you know, uh, again, just wanted to make sure that we were. I, I hope when people were listening to this, they felt that we were trying to be measured. We're not trying to pile on to a founder. I think it's not fair. I think she was not alone. And I want people to realize that this is a true situation that a lot of founders come across. It's very challenging. All right. So the next one, hopefully this is not another. I mean, maybe it is. We've, we've had we've only gone through two, two stories or maybe three at this point. So we're going to try to run through a lot more. I want to make sure that uh, I give a disclosure. This article in Fast Company had a soft mention. Uh, and when I say a soft mention, I mean, they said that we were what's coming next, which is awesome for resilient health. So I, I, this is not why I'm actually going to be talking about this. And we can stay away from that. But this article was talking about the telehealth industry in general. If you've been watching the markets, which I know a lot of our a lot of our listeners are watching the markets, telehealth stocks have had a bloodbath. And, you know, uh, it has been the panacea of the pandemic that we saw telehealth have this meteoric rise. And, you know, when you I'll walk you through kind of, you know, what has happened. So in the pandemic, in February of 2021, according to Ruth Reader, a fast company, Teladoc uh, had a stock high of $293.66 a share. I, I wish we had the Jeopardy music, but I was going to say, you know, people might be surprised to hear that in the middle of a pandemic, we're still in it. Teladoc's share price is $89. Uh, that's a pretty big drop. Amwell went from $35 to now $5. Hims went from $23.99 to $6 per share. Even Zoom is down. And Zoom, by the way, has a huge presence in telehealth now. Um, and when you look at what's happening, there's actually been an, a Cambrian explosion of telehealth companies. That's one. So they've got more competition than ever. We're seeing hyper-segmentation of telehealth. I can tell you right now the companies I'm most excited about. Uh, one, of the, one of the biggest ones is Spora Health, the first health system for people of color. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I, when I think about uh, you know, this hyper segmentation, making sure that we're meeting the needs of people and meeting them where they are. You're using telehealth as a modality to do it, but you're not just a telehealth company. You're a company that's taking care of this group of people. And I think that's what we're seeing. This hyper segmentation of telehealth is making the big players or what some would call the unbundling of the big, bad telehealth companies into these smaller players. They're solving the problems of specific people specific, uh, you know, in, in a very targeted way, we're going to see this trend continue. And she mentioned that trend. The second trend has been all of these companies were way overpriced because even at their peak, they represented less than 20% of visits. People still need, and I talk about this and I'm going to do another disclaimer. This is part of my normal speech to investors which is people still need physical exams, labs, and imaging. I'm an ear, nose, throat doctor. Imagine I didn't look in your ear, nose, and throat. <laughs> like this is, you know, Anna Marie can tell you that if her daughter went to a pediatric cardiologist um, and they didn't listen to her heart, <laughs> um, I think she'd be a little bit pissed. And this is like, this is just healthcare 101. Anybody in healthcare could have told you that you can't FaceTime healthcare. 
all the way. You can do a part of it. There are some areas, by the way, when you look at the stocks, mental health is still thriving, except for maybe talk space, which I wouldn't even call really mental health. But I was going to say, you know, the, the really good mental health providers are still at some level thriving because mental health, you can do pretty much everything you would do in person completely online. But when you're looking at what's coming next, and that's what Ruth was mentioning. And again, she mentioned resilient, which is awesome. Thank you, Ruth. But that's not what we're talking about this article. Um, I promise. Uh, so, you know, City Block Health is a good example of a company. They're focused on uh, on specific populations, largely people of color that have that need access to both healthcare in their community and access to virtual care. So these omni, what we're seeing is what comes next. It's already happening. Telehealth instead of being a service line, it's being used as a modality. It's part of an omni-channel or multiple channels that are working together is what omni-channel means. Omni-channel, streamlined, you know, click and mortar, whatever you want to call it, there's this new birth of these companies like mine, but also like CityBlock, also like uh, Carbon, uh, also in the psychiatry space, we've seen uh, Talkiatry. We're seeing all of these companies now starting to have a birth, starting to go beyond the basics. <laughs> and that's what this article is about. So if you're asking about what's coming next in healthcare, what's coming next in healthcare is that remote care delivery companies are coming after the, 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 the doctor that's in, not coming after the doctor, coming after healthcare, the way it's delivered by these giant health systems in your community. So I wanted to make sure that everybody understands what I mean by that. In the U.S., it's very different, okay? So in the U.S., while, uh, while the legacy health systems aren't big enough nationally to be able to push out everybody else, in the local markets, they run. They run everything. What I mean by that is they make it so difficult for your mom-and-pop doctor to practice in the local market like they have to end up selling and there's mass consolidation and they've all agreed we're not i'm not going to come into your market if you don't come into mine and so we have essentially an oligopoly of large health systems that are killing healthcare in this in this country and what they're doing is they're buying up a bunch of practices so that they can then work with payers and get the best rates possible which by the way affects your bottom line as a patient that's what's been happening and I just want to be clear, people don't talk about it because you're not seeing big antitrust lawsuits against them. Uh, as probably from the law that Ken will tell me, Donish, they can't. They're not, you know, <laughs> there's a hundred health systems. How can there be? But in that local market, they are doing all the same practices that if they were national, those would be seen as, uh, you know, anti-competitive behaviors. And we're seeing this right now in healthcare. So there's been this mass consolidation that's occurring. And along the way, prices are getting higher. So now payers are saying, hey, I don't want to pay this health system, uh, you know, $400 for a doctor's appointment when there's other alternatives. So, so it's, it's opened up. And that, by the way, is the next big trend. What we're going to see is brick and mortar plus telehealth will revolutionize access. Your doctor will be available to you both in a brick and mortar setting and via telehealth, whatever that looks like. But that is clearly the next big wave. And I can tell you right now, it's gonna change everything. It's gonna be what, not just us, but others, it's gonna be like what Amazon did to traditional retail. It's coming, I promise you. But Dr. Danish, I already have that with one medical. 
Exactly. One Medical is another company that was mentioned in this article. And you don't have to have it with just one company. I mean, we're using it with many doctors and many companies, and we've been in a hybrid mode for, you know, well over a year, and it really works well. And the other thing that really is quite uh, uh, gratifying to me is that the, the advent of the kind of portal system where I can pop a question to my doctor, and within an hour or two, he's going to give me the one-line answer. Um, you know, and I've done that many, many times, and it's really, really rewarding, as opposed to calling your doctor, <laughs> leaving a message, getting the answering service. That seems, so, that seems like an eon ago in terms of where we are, so it's great. And yeah, and just like Francine said, we've seen this evolution. I think we're going to continue to see this evolution. And again, I can talk about my company, but I'm not going to. You can Google it and check it out. But, you know, there's going to be an evolution from One Medical forward. But One Medical was one of the pioneers of this, of this omni-channel care delivery model. I think uh, it was the pioneer. It was certainly the first one I had heard about. And it started in San Francisco. So Yeah, but it was built, I mean... They've been accused for, for, of other issues. You can Google One Medical and see a bunch of stuff going on how doctors are feeling about One Medical now. But, uh, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that One Medical, yes, was the pioneer in this. But what they did was exciting, but it was step number one. They still are only in, you know, frankly, in markets where the problem is not the biggest problem. San Francisco has like 30 health systems, right? Like San Francisco has access to care. New York has access to care. The, the, the problems exist in the middle of the country. They exist in, in rural areas. They exist in other areas. And I think what we're going to see is people are going to start applying these concepts just like back in the day. I'll give you a simple example. Your concierge doctor back in the day could talk to you on the phone. They could even video conference you. Like I'm talking about like 10, 15 years ago, uh, they would use like video phones and stuff. It was crazy. And we still, or they would use Skype or they would use other things and, and you, you could do these things. So telehealth has been around forever and one medical put it into a nice, you know, good model. And I think they, that they were, as Francine said, the pioneer in this. But I think what's exciting is what's coming next. And that's what they were talking about. I think City Block is incredible. I think Carbon is doing amazing work on the urgent care side um, uh, and, and others. And again, uh, you know, if you want to learn about what we're doing, you can go check, you can go to my profile and figure out. But the, the bigger thing is, I think it's not just us. And I think what we're seeing is an acceleration to remote care delivery that has never been seen before. That, by the way, will demolish your traditional regional health system unless they adapt. And we've learned from every other industry that they don't adapt fast enough. They just don't do it because they have to cannibalize their current heads and beds hospital-centric models and all of these systems, and that's what people don't understand, are built outside of inpatient care because they're focused only on clinics and only on telehealth, and they don't require that patient to then get surgery. They don't require, they actually have an incentive to keep them at the clinic, which then saves payers money, which then, uh, you know, and payers being employers or whoever, so they have a completely separate set of incentives. And that's what Ruth was speaking about. And I think that was a very, very good point. Hey, Dr. Anybody... Nish, can I ask you, is, it, is it, this just the delivery or is this also impacting how insurance is provided or obtained? So this is primarily on delivery. I will say mm -hmm. a birdie told me that Oscar is getting into the brick and mortar game too. 
So it tells you, and you know, Optum has its own clinics with United Healthcare uh, or United Health Group. We're seeing this happen. Uh, Evernorth is another one that's doing this. And so we're going to see people start to, you know, make these systems within the insurance companies and make like mini Kaisers all over the country. <laughs> we're actually going to see this everywhere. Uh, but we're going to see the innovation. And it's, you know, people might not like this, but you know who's faster to innovate? Payers. Payers are innovating at the fastest clip we have ever seen. And when I mean payers, I mean these insurance companies. People might not know this. Do you, can anybody guess who is the largest group of doctors? What is the largest hirer of doctors in America? Does anybody know? If not, I can tell you. It's, it's surprising. The Catholic Church? No. Optum. Optum, United Healthcare. People don't know this. They have over 50,000 doctors. And it gives you a sense of what's coming. What we're seeing is the deployment of this. Cigna Medical Group. We're seeing Oscar come into, the, into care delivery, obviously. And especially through actual physical clinics, not just virtual care. We're seeing this omni-channel care model really take off. Now, do I think that there's some level of a hype curve around this? Sure. Do I think that there's always going to be a role for emergency and acute care in the community, 100%, until they also are able to deliver some of this remotely, right? Like we've seen with EICU, for example, some level of it being delivered remotely. So I just think that we're seeing, we're seeing acceleration of the transition to completely remotely delivered care. We're even doing surgeries remotely now. I mean, this is, this is the reality of where we are right now in healthcare. And I think that's, that's the big, big sort of trend that she spoke about. How, how much of that is real? And how much of that is, is a pipe dream? That's, that's a personal uh, belief. I, I, I'm obviously, as you just heard me say it, I'm clearly a believer. But I wanted to hear from the other physicians. Oh, Pak Teng, Dr. Pak Teng, how are you? Uh, you know, I, uh, you know I, I wanted to hear from other physicians around, do they believe that these challenger providers are really going to be able to displace the big, big health systems? I, 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 obviously, I'm a believer, but I'd love to hear from others. John or somebody else. Yeah, this is Dr. Pekte. How's it going, Zanish? Happy New Year. Um, Happy New Year. The, you know, I think part of it is we have to see both the technology advance uh, in parallel to the culture advancing. I, I don't think what you very brought up at the beginning um, can't be overlooked, right? Like patients need to be comfortable. Um, and one of the things that you mainly pointed to was that power of touch, right? So we, as physicians, so much of what we do is just the actual physical touch. And I, I tell this to residents all the time. You know, I work in the emergency room, so sometimes uh, things are, especially right now, for example, things are chaotic. When I walk into the room, sometimes the patients are waiting like five, six. I had the other day a patient wait 22 hours in the waiting room to come in and be seen. Jesus Christ. Um, it's getting really insane out there. So please, everyone be safe. Do what you can to, um, you know, not be in a situation where you have to have it, seek emergency care, including all these things that you're talking about, um, access to care, different levels of access to care. But um, the very first, I will tell you, the best piece of medicine these days I'm giving to people is walking in the room and say, wow, I'm so incredibly sorry that you had to wait this long. And thank you so much for your patience. And 
I will tell you that that sentence is probably the thing that gives the people that I see these days the most amount of care, right? And just giving them a, a slight touch on the shoulder and saying, hey, I'm here, I'm listening. Um, so the power of that touch, like, for example, the stethoscope, like, I don't really need to listen to every single person's heart and lungs um, for almost, mm, I don't know, 85% of the problems that, or plus that I see in the emergency room. But I do that to every single person in the emergency room because the people don't feel cared for unless I touch them with a stethoscope. So um, I think once the culture of people uh, getting used to it, I can see like once you establish a good relationship with your primary doctor or your specialist, um, telehealth is great. But if you first meet someone on telehealth, I think it's really hard to convey that level of care um, to people without the physical touch aspect. But I think you're right, Donish, like this Omni Health and using all these multiple things, you know, in the emergency room, uh, in the emergency world, we're talking a lot about like thinking beyond the walls of the emergency room and like now going into that more deploying emergency physicians like physically out back in. It seems so old school, but um, it, it's going to be a combination of all those things, the future of, of medicine for sure. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I, I do wonder how the incumbents will, will deal with this. And by the incumbents, I don't mean one medical and others. I think, you know, I mean um, the big health systems, your local health system here in, in St. Louis, that's Barnes Jewish Children's Hospital or, or BJC or WashU, depending on how you talk about it, uh, where I used to be. Um, you know, it's interesting because they have adapted in the middle of a pandemic and they have tried to provide omni-channel care, yet most patients are still giving them NPS scores in the 20s. I don't know if people know that. So in healthcare across the country, net promoter scores, which is a, uh, a, a very crude and probably not the best metric, but it's the, be the best metric we know and the easiest to collect for healthcare is somewhere in the 20s. If you're lucky, it's in the 20s, but you know, it gives you a sense of where healthcare truly is. Do you know what the net promoter score for one medical is? 90s. I think it's 90 exactly. <laughs> and it gives you a sense of how, and City Block Health, really good net promoter score. And, and Do you know why? Incredible experience. I'll tell you this. In the 80s, when I was working for um, the, one of the first um, HMOs in the country, we did a bunch of polls. And we found out of our patients, and we found out that what influenced what was you know the then equivalent of the net promoter score was um how long did you have to wait in the waiting room and how hard was it to make an appointment and that was how people judged the level of care that they got and it had absolutely nothing to do with the level of care it was all how the front office operated and i believe that that's what determines net net promoter scores also and one medical's appointments always start on time i don't know how they do it but they always oh, start can, on time we, we can go into that there's actually they have the best queuing scheduling uh ai that you can imagine uh some of the stuff that we're doing is very similar and it's very challenging you're absolutely right uh so i wanted to make sure if anybody else has a comment on this otherwise we're going to move on to the next story all right so uh, you know, we've, we've had Dr. Donish, I had a question. Yeah. Does any of this pro proliferate into the VA system somehow? 
because you're talking about highly localized oligopolies in, in between the coasts in New York and San Francisco, but what about the between the coasts government system? Yeah, you know, I, I will say, you know what's really interesting, David, is that the VA has actually been, of the different sort of incumbents, the VA has been the biggest proponent of telehealth by far. Erica, I'm not sure if you're still uh, available, but, you know, maybe you can speak to this. Um, and I actually think that we have a few VA experts in the audience. I can bring her up as well. But, you know, ultimately, the VA was the first adopter, David, of, of telehealth. Isn't that nuts? And, and if you look at the amount of money the VA spends on telehealth, it, it is much more than any health system that we have. But you're absolutely right. Right now, all of these incredible omni-channel care systems are limited to essentially tech-forward people in the Bay Area or tech-forward people in New York. They're out of reach for the average person uh, for now. Um, and again, uh, I would encourage you to check out what we're doing. But, you know, that, that's the problem that we don't have this, quote unquote, concierge primary care or this, you know, omni-channel care delivery models really available for the common person. And when that happens, that's when everything will change. That's when it will fall. My father, uh, who passed away last year, used to have this really great saying, which was, winners build solutions, losers build monuments. And that was one of my favorite lines, because that's what you see. When we saw the retail industry fall apart, you saw these big box stores get bigger, more beautiful. Do you guys remember what, what, what Marshall Fields and all these other places, like they used to look like these beautiful, monumentous stores. They're all empty now. Sears is gone. All of these big, big box stores are gone, right? Even though they spent all this money on making themselves destinations, they died. A lot of them died. And uh, we're seeing the same thing with hospital systems right now. Look, look, just look in your own backyard and see how many new buildings they're building, most of which are empty. And, and that's what's happening in healthcare right now, whereas companies like Carbon are building new clinics every week. And these, there are these tiny micro clinics that are available in your backyard. Carbon Health is doing incredible work. Uh, you know, you're seeing the same thing. You know, uh, uh, I'll give you an example for us. We have a mandate to build tens of hundreds of clinics in the next three years because there's this need, like you said, in the heart of America where we are and in other parts of the country where we are, where literally there's just not every big health system. Let's just say what it is. They see primary care as a loss leader. They see one medical, which has made so much money, sees primary care as a winner. All these health systems see primary care as a loser. They look at the way they treat their primary care doctors. And, and going back to the VA, you know, the VA has always centered around primary care. I will say that at least from my experience, and I've only spent a little bit of time in the VA, and I don't know if Erica's here. Erica, feel free to cut me off and time in, but, oh, there you are. Uh, I was going to say, primary care has been at the center of every VA model that I've ever seen. And so, Erica, do you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I mean, you basically you need to get services in the VA with, like, the exception of, like, audiology or eyeglasses. You need a primary care physician, um, not just as a gatekeeper, but like really to establish a relationship for the patient to have someone to navigate specialty care, which I think is really important. And I think really as a primary care physician is burdensome, but also is like the way medicine really should work. Um, I actually enjoy managing diseases and I don't think that everybody with diabetes needs an endocrinologist. And so 
I think um, I appreciate that level of care. Um, but I think the to, to speak about your telehealth model within the VA, I think it's still, so there's a couple limitations. Many of our veterans still live in places um, where service isn't great or they're still technology limited. And the, the VA model for telehealth is still really sort of hub and spoke. And so they still really need to be able to connect to the hub um, in order to access telehealth. And many of them are still so traditional and really in their, want the contact with um, our medical center. So for instance, we're in our, we're in a huge surge again in Michigan and we're somebody, somebody the hot, John, the hot um, so we're, um, you know, canceling clinics and pushing things towards virtual care. And it poses a lot of challenges um, just in access. And, and obviously, you know, phone visit is not as good as, as a video visit. Um, and for many things, a video visit is actually good. And, and I've spoken about this here before. Um, you know, I practice home-based care when COVID is not happening and when I'm not, I don't have ancillary responsibilities. And so I get a, a full spectrum view of my patients and I go into their homes and get to see what's going on. And one advantage of telehealth actually that is uh, primary care clinicians in a traditional clinic setting have realized that the patients can turn their device around and primary care docs are actually getting a sense of where their patients live. Um, so especially for geriatric patients, it's like a mini home safety assessment. They can see what a transfer looks like for their patients. They can see what the kitchen setup looks like. They can see what the pill bottle setup looks like. And so in some ways, telehealth is actually providing more information for their patients. Um, and I think this is really a surprise benefit for telehealth and an assessment of our patients in a different way. So I think there's pros and cons to both approaches. And some combination where maybe a patient comes in for a hands-on assessment once a year, twice a year, but the intermediary visits can be telehealth, virtual care, I think is really a model that um, must be cost savings overall and that will really lead to patient satisfaction in a way that I think is really meaningful. Um, and I'm guessing that outcomes will show this once we have the data. Um, and I think it's a really important um, tool to have in our toolbox. Absolutely. Sorry. Oh, uh, David, I was going to give John the opportunity to jump in as well. Um, uh, you know, John, you're, you've, you were involved with the digital transformation of the, one of the largest health systems in the country. People, many people don't know this because you're very quiet and humble about it. But uh, uh, and if you start looking into it, you're going to realize it's still the largest use uh, user of telehealth in the country right now as a health system. But you know, would love to get your thoughts on these challenger providers and and their impact, especially with the omni-channel care model. And and actually, what would be interesting is also to understand from your perspective why we're seeing the decline of companies like Teladoc and Amlo. Sure, um, thanks, Danish. Um, so yeah, I was pretty intimately involved in in being one of the two co-leaders of the digital transformation and all the virtual care for one of the larger healthcare systems. And we were seeing 50,000 video visits a month before COVID even hit. Um, we had nearly completed our health record deployment before the meaningful use legislation incentivized people uh, to implement health records. And uh, so we've uh, in, Must in be Kaiser. Role, in my former role, I was uh, 
I was participating uh, pretty early on in this stuff. And uh, to date myself, it was an Apple IIe that I wrote in my vision uh, paper uh, for where we were headed. And it, this circles back to the primacy of primary care. So having been both a director of an ICU and practiced primary care for many years, um, the observation I've had all along is that the uh, hyper-specialization in healthcare um, was a consequence of a rapid influx of new technology, new training programs, vast amounts of new information, but without the analytics and the clinical decision support and the digital, digital health to support a primary care being able to uh, make incursions into what today has been the exclusive domain of specialty care. And the white paper I wrote on an Apple IIe uh, basically said that um, we would see a return of the primacy of primary care when we were fully digitally transformed because we would have decision support systems that enabled the primary care doc to do most of what the specialties do in the absence of procedures. Uh, and the procedures belong in the hands of someone who does lots of procedures every single day. There's great literature. The more you do, the better you get. It's pretty simple. Um, and so we're going to see specialists' um, uh, domain and purview shrinking to a great extent to the procedures because the intelligence about how to get someone, how to decide who needs a procedure, how to keep them from needing a procedure in the first place, is going to be table stakes. It's all we're getting there um, in clinical decision support manifest in the workflow of a primary care doc seeing the patient. So I I, I wrote that paper on a two E and I, I still believe in it. And we're what Danish described earlier is actually the the third act of the play um, in the return to primary care as where the vast majority of healthcare comes. Back in the eighties, one of the preeminent physicians in the world, Robert Petersdorf, wrote an editorial in the New England Journal that kind of blew my mind. Um, and he basically said, you know, we got a problem. All, every, all our medical students are going into um, specialty care because they get paid twice as much as, as they will in primary care. So here's the solution, guys. We're going we're gonna to pay them 50% more for their internship and residency and, you know, translate that into another $10,000 a year during training in order to bait and switch them um, to the lower income of what they'll end up with when they get out of their primary care training programs. I, I, I mean, it, it just, when I read it at the time, it was jaw-dropping that that was the solution um, to the, the vast emigration of medical students from primary care residencies into specialty care residencies. So um, what we're seeing now is the rightful return of the high-touch, high-empathy primary care relationship uh, aided by uh, digital healthcare, uh, digital uh, clinical decision support, digital virtual care, the ability to see into people's household. And Jay Saunders, who is really the, the, the credited pioneer of telemedicine, used to like to tell the following stories. And, you know, I, I had this COPD patient with lung disease who I just, no matter what I did, she wasn't getting better. And th this is a video visit he did 35, 40 years ago. And he said, the very first video of a visit I did with her, I saw her husband in the background chain smoking. And I suddenly understood what I failed <laughs> to understand uh, for years of taking care of this patient. So the, the, the 
consequences of the digital transformation of healthcare are many fold. And I think uh, all of uh, Danish's comments on the migration from bricks to clicks and from uh, big monuments um, to uh, they, they, well, I'll just leave it at that. The big monuments um, of, of uh, bricks um, are uh, starting to uh, be displaced uh, by these rapid uh, advances in distributed clinics. And, and Dr. Danish has refrained from uh, pitching his company here. So I will, um, even highly distributed virtual clinics that include lab and radiology services, and uh, at least initially, and I suspect long-term, uh, a human empathic individual with hands that touch the patient um, to facilitate that bridge. So we're, we're headed for um, a much better future in healthcare, but the resistance of the incumbency is powerful. Um, and as Danish said, the payers are wise to this, the employers are wise to this. They're seeing their uh, total uh, um, cost centers um, increasingly concentrated, not just in healthcare, but in disability and time off work and absenteeism, all of which derive from a flailing healthcare system. So there are there are multiple uh, factors that are pushing us towards much more digital and much more integrated. And interoperability is something I've worked on for most of my career. Um, we're not we're far from done, uh, but when you can truly have an integrated health record and every individual who sees that patient has access to that record, and when you can put as one of your first principles, as Danish has, having a single physician maintain continuity of care, whether virtual or not, um, you begin to see a future where um, the first principles of human behavior, they first must trust um, uh, the, their personal position. And there's this great uh, saying that's been attributed to various people, but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so putting that personal touch out front, enabling that personal touch with digital health, enabling better outcomes with clinical decision support, enabling, uh, enabling more convenience and access through uh, virtual care. Those are the solutions that uh, we're starting to see come to market and to really get traction. And yes, it's gonna be a real threat to these monoliths, to um, you know, the, the high-tech, especially procedure um, uh, solution sets that you see in all the major metropolitan areas of the country that, that are effectively addressing the failures of our public health system and the failures of our primary care network and the failures of uh, or or the the um, delayed adoption of uh, the digital health technologies. so i'm I'm very optimistic about the future of healthcare and and unfortunately, there's a whole generation of physicians who got stuck in Act two of this play. and Act two, is where people who really express empathy, who really look after uh, their patients with their heart and their soul in addition to their brain um, are suffering mightily uh, from overload, burnout, lack of appreciation, um, and, 
and and in the current COVID situation, uh, patients who start off every visit by complaining about how long they've waited and how sick they are and how terrible the system is. So we have a generation of physicians and nurses um, who are really burned out, and the great resignation is really coming home to roost in healthcare as we speak in COVID. And the way out of it is clearly everything Dr. Danish has been describing unequivocally, that's the way out. But unfortunately, um, we, we have a lot of, of people who have uh, not just the patients themselves, but those trying uh, against odds to, to really deliver comprehensive, uh, uh, high quality outcomes in the midst of this pandemic who are just burned out to the core. So anything that any company does to accelerate this Act 3 transition into a fully digital distributed world where primary care assumes its rightful role and empathy returns to healthcare, that'll be the day um, that people will start praising the healthcare system in the U.S. again. I'm done. Thanks, John. Really appreciate that. You know, what, I wanted to give David Macias a chance to weigh in as well from the patient perspective. Uh, but one thing that I want to say really quick is what John is talking about with Act 2 cannot be overstated. We saw, this has happened again in every other industry, as they go through the same processes, in, you know, uh, challengers come in, they start consolidating. As they consolidate, as we saw in retail as well, they, they start pressing harder and harder on the people that are working for them. And they continue to do that in, an, in the name of efficiency. That breaks them apart at the seams. And then the, the disruptors become the incumbents. That is a common thing that you will see over and over again. And, and John's absolutely right that Act 2 was, we're going to look back and look at a generation of physicians and nurses and others that will, uh, that, that will say, holy crap, I didn't even know. Uh, Stockholm Syndrome was real. I can't believe they put us through that. It, it's, it's, a, it's very, very, very scary that we're going to go through this and look back at 10 years and say, I can't believe we let people do that to doctors and to nurses. It's absolutely unreal. David, I wanted to give you the floor. Uh, it's impossible to follow John. <laughs> And you. <laughs> Sorry, I just, this, this, these conversations are always so amazing. I just wanted to partially ask a question, um, but is it, was it Erica? Holy mackerel, Erica, when you were talking about just turning around the camera on these telehealth, I've spent half a dozen plus years doing caregiving for my ailing parents in their 80s. And and boy that is challenging and so i'm thinking about all the chronic care and all the help seniors just generally need and when you're talking about turning a, a camera around which i didn't even think about <laughs> i mean in the sense because i was there right i was the i was the middle-aged uh, sandwich generation son who's been taking them to all their appointments and i would even create my own spreadsheets for the daily daily uh, daily you know care sheets and all that for all the caregivers but when you said that, that kind of really blew my mind because that, and, the, and I, I want to call it, because we've, we've talked about high touch, which has been around a long time, and precision med, there's different ways to call it, but, but to transform and really evolve the culture of health by, by really being able to turn that camera around and to be just, a, just right, right there with, with the patient's families and in their environment, that there's so many, think about it, everybody. How many, we spend 10, 20 minutes filling out papers to help inform your doctor when you, during your, during your, uh, your, uh, your appointment, right? 
And then just imagine, just and I'm not just advocating just taking pictures and all that stuff of, of people's homes, but just you know starting that that whole new means to 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 provide so many more insights, so much uh, in, in a such more easier fashion for for seniors because seniors they need a lot, they just need a lot of help when anybody gets that age. You know, you just need a, a lot more help catching all the the uh, details and things like that. But I just want to talk about culture of health for just a moment because. Everything that you're describing is so exciting. And John, what it, what not a surprise to hear you were <laughs> envisioning this decades ago because I had an Apple IIc, so buddy, I, I know what you mean. But that's so awesome. And chapter three sounds so exciting um, because the, uh, the, the race to specialties has been something that we as patients have definitely observed. And it is nice to, to just have a reinvigoration of the first moment of, of care and things like that. So, so just in closing, the, the, as this, the segment, segmented needs start to, to get the benefit of this chapter three, this, the, the, the people who only need preventative, the people who need the chronic disease as well, I think it's going to be so exciting. Um, thanks, for, thanks for everything, everybody. Happy New Year. Hey, thanks, David. I was going to say, um, you know, we're going to do a quick burst of stories for people that have joined us. And there are, you know, hundreds of people in the room right now, which is great. Um, you know, our format is that we go through the different stories of the week. We have now gotten to an all in two hours, y'all. We've gotten through, I believe, four stories. <laughs> so we're going to do a short burst. It just tells you about how busy this last two weeks have been and how important these stories really are about what's coming next. And so we have a few stories that I'm going to run through really quick. And then we're going to uh, end with uh, a, a story that will be a transition story into probably one of the most important things that have happened in the last two weeks. And we're lucky enough to have a lot of people that are on the front lines taking care of patients, but also people that are experts in the space uh, that we'll want to hear from around the interview that Robert Malone did with joe rogan again i'm just teasing it we're not there yet okay we're gonna get there in a second but um so first was the big story and prereq i'm not sure if you can pin these links or tweet them out on our if you go to prereq's profile and go to his twitter handle we uh i don't know how many followers we have have hundreds of followers now on twitter which is awesome but we actually tweet out of there so if you want to know if we don't pin the link you can easily follow along on twitter um, uh, with health news ch is the handle, but um, the the stories have been incredible. And imagine a a week where the story that Synchron announced the first direct thought tweet. I'm not even kidding. Hello world, using an implant implantable BCI for us for the for the nerds in the room. We have been looking at BCI for so long. And in Australia, Synchron announced that they used a thought, a direct thought tweet that said, hello world, using an implantable BCI, a patient that has ALS in Australia. Uh, for people that don't know ALS, it is a uh, debilitating disease where you lose motor function over time. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's for anybody that's had a family member with this, you realize the power of this, but now start thinking about neurodegenerative diseases like my, the one my father had or others, this is a game changer. So a patient with ALS in Australia is the first person to tweet a message to the world using only direct thought. So just to be clear, there have been BCIs in the past for people that are, that are paying attention uh, with, tech, uh, with the health news every 
every week. There have been, we've talked about other BCIs, uh, brain computer interfaces, where they are using the brain to actually type out the letters H E L L O. That has been around, but no one has solved this next big phase. And if people don't realize how much of a leap this is, I would recommend you go and read this story and realize how much of a leap this is. They, the thought in the brain was hello world and it typed out hello world in a tweet. This is a huge move. I think this is going to be, uh, uh, I, I'm actually going to bet that there will be acquisition offers for this company pretty quickly. This is a very exciting, you know, uh, exciting uh, opportunity for this to go out. And again, they use Twitter as an example of, of how that could be used. But if you can take direct thought, which is how they're, that's how they named it because this concept has not really existed. Instead of thinking about looking at something on a screen or, or and by the way, even the letters, you couldn't think in your head, A, B, C, D. That's not how it worked. They would put a screen in front of you usually in the previous iterations of these things. And you would look at a, uh, it would be gaze-based. So you would gaze at something and your brain computer interface would then know, okay, they're looking at the top left corner at these pixels. And we can use that now to develop, to write out the word. This is a direct thought, and that is incredibly exciting. And by the way, this is just a quick story we're going to run through. The second quick story we're going to run through is uh, around uh, Meta and, uh, you know, for people that, again, are, are under a rock, Meta is what Facebook used to be. They're claiming that their, imp- their AI actually improves speech recognition by reading lips. Uh, prereq, if you can tweet that or even add that as a pinned link. Fascinating story for people... Uh, that don't know this, I mean, I think most people know this, but people that have mild hearing loss usually use uh, uh, reading lips as a transition uh, before they truly need hearing aids. And you might have a family member that's doing that without even recognizing that they're doing that. Uh, The easiest way to be able to catch that, sorry, ear, nose, throat doctor coming out. The easiest way to catch that is if they can't hear in crowds, they're starting to lose hearing. And that's a usual first sign of this. But, you know, Meta is using that same concept to actually improve its speech recognition by actually reading your lips on videos. Isn't that genius? We're going to see this biomimetic uh, uh, thing really take off. And we're, we've seen it before, but AI is going to learn from years, centuries of natural selection, probably. Um, the story I wanted to end with, and it's a transition into the COVID world, and kind of speaks to the gravity of what's going on. And, and Burak, if you can pin this link, that'd be awesome. Which is, Hospitals are in serious trouble. Hey, Danish. Hey, Danish. Yes. Yeah, but before we we lose the agenda to COVID, which invariably happens once we start COVID, could I just uh, double click on what you just said um, in, in biomimicry and AI? And this is fascinating because I've had some offline co- conversations with Katerina, who's really onto this in the machine learning world. If you look at the human brain and its organization, not just at the molecular level and the cellular level, but at the anatomic level, what you see is highly distributed computing, but with lots of local specializations. And as someone who's been um, steeped in evolutionary biology my whole career, I've often uh, sort of reflected on the irony of how machine learning was originally called neural networks because they operated on a lot of the principles of neural networks connectivity in the network space and how woefully we've neglected the opportunity of localized specializations as represented in the anatomy of the human brain. And so Katarina is one of the leading thinkers in this space, for those of you who don't know. And uh, there is 
there is going to be a huge leap forward. And if we ever get to AGI, prob- uh, uh, artificial generalized intelligence, it's probably going to be to a great extent, extent mimicking the anatomic specialization as represented by the millions of evolution, years of evolution in not just the human brains, but in the brains of all advanced species, and that uh, we will uh, really make quantum leaps in what we can do in the machine learning and artificial and true artificial intelligence world, the closer we mimic the outcome of millions of years of natural selection. So I just wanted to, you laid that track down and I didn't want to neglect it before we get lost in COVID. Um, and I'd, I'd like to follow up on exactly that. Go ahead. We, we, we can, we, you know, we, at some point, you know, exactly how soon is, is hard to say. It could be soon. We will be making these quantum leaps. Uh, we need quantum leaps in, in security and we need quantum leaps in an understanding of all of the implications of where we're going with this, especially uh, with, with regard to, you know, what problems are we actually trying to solve? Um, you know, this is obviously the, the brain computer interfaced uh, uh, driven tweet and everything that it implies and everything that's going to follow directly for it for disability, uh, for people with disabilities is, is just a wonderful development. Uh, and it's going to, you know, meaningfully liberate a lot of people. Uh, but, you know, there are going to be people in the military who have specific jobs that will require them to get uh, brain-computer interfaces, and we're going to have to confront the situation of, well, you have a person in the loop, but how much uh, is it the machine side of that loop that's driving uh, what the person in the loop is doing to make kill decisions? Uh, and and you know how 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 do we keep the person in the loop relevant? And similarly, uh, we've seen how uh, people's interaction with social media can really drive their decision making in ways that you know would have made no sense at all otherwise. And uh, is is you know we're, we're, we've seen pernicious effects, and we need we need to learn how to solve those problems before we move them inside the cranium. Yes, and uh, good points. And I'd like to add also, um, the company that you're referring to, Synchron, um, also announced a US uh, clinical trial in humans of its motor neuroprothesis uh, from a $10 million grant from the National Institute of Health. And the global brain computing industry is a fairly emerging market, I would say, quite nascent, but um, it's not new. And it's expected to reach by 2027, 3.7 billion, according to a February 2020 report by Grandview Research. So the players in the space that you wanna watch uh, are Kernel, Emotive, um, NeuroSky, Mind Solutions, uh, which is listed on the OTC, um, not as medical incorporated, and of course, um, CompuMedics and Neuralink, which was uh, Elon Musk's company. And uh, Synchron is also aiming to be the first commercially available implantable uh, brain computer interface to be approved by the FDA. Their goal is uh, uh, by uh, August uh, 2020. Um, just to let you know that in August 2020, they, uh, the Stentrode motor neuroprosthesis correction uh, was granted the uh, breakthrough device 
designation. So that's a special designation by the FDA. Um, um, and so it helps expedite the pathway for those who are accepted into that designation um, to uh, go through the full approval process. And the stentrode by Synchron is uh, implanted with a minimally invasive two-hour procedure. That's quite similar concept, if you can imagine, to cardiac stents. And it does not, I stress, does not require open brain surgery. So. These patients can use their thoughts to wirelessly control external devices for texting, email, e-commerce, and you name it with the stentrode. So, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Um, it, absolutely. So, all right. So we're gonna go to this the story, the next story, which I was mentioning a little bit about, uh, and I appreciate. As I mentioned, we have so many good stories that can be sometimes challenging. To, to move on. And we all know what happens when we start talking COVID, but today is a really important COVID day, actually. So number one, the first story was about the hospitals and what's happening. So again, like we predicted, but not just us, most of the experts out there predicted this as well, which is, yes, it appears that Omicron is milder. It appears that Omicron is milder in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. But as the pie, and I'm sorry about the pie, for the people that have been up on the stage, they've heard me say this, but this is the easiest way to think about it. The slice of hospitalizations and deaths in a pie is very small, but the pie is doubling every day. Uh, so it gives you a sense of how challenging it's been. And, you know, we called it, uh, we did it, folks. In the U.S., the hospitals are now completely buckling. Uh, we have an infrastructure that is really struggling even though the hospitalization rate is low, the absolute number of hospitalizations are incredibly high. Uh, we have had the, the same number of cases that we had the six months prior we've had in the last month. And by the way, the predictions are that we're gonna have that number of cases in two weeks, in the next two weeks. The number of cases we've had in the last month, we're gonna have the same number of cases in the next two weeks. And so it gives you a sense of even if there's a reduction in a certain linear measure, we're growing at an exponential rate. And, and it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking what's happening, not because, and you know, Dr. Pak Teng, who was on stage mentioned this, it's affecting the experience of healthcare. People are waiting in waiting rooms forever. By the way, if you're somebody who goes to the waiting room with a broken leg and walks out with COVID, we didn't do our jobs, right? Like we, we clearly, the system clearly failed you. And so, uh, so, you know, we've got a bunch of people that are sitting in the waiting room. And by the way, they're not just in the waiting room because they're super duper sick. They're in the waiting room because they can't get a test at their local urgent care because the local urgent cares are completely overwhelmed. You know why? Because their employees are sick. This is the ripple effects of a system that has broken down. And I don't think it makes sense to blame one person or whatever, but I, you've got to ask yourself, where has our system gone wrong? And it's gone wrong from the way that we've uh, approached testing. This should We've been calling for testing for months and months and months. Go back, listen to one of our old podcasts on Spotify. We've been calling for this testing problem for months. They knew this was going to happen and they didn't prepare for it. And, and, you know, they, you know, and they being the administration, the CDC, uh, you know, uh, manufacturers, the, you know, all of these different elements have failed and they're leading to this incredible issue. And on top of that, we've done an incredibly bad job on communication 
And again, CDC specifically has done an awful job on communication, um, so much so that the, the interim director is going in for media training now. That's another news story. But the ultimate consequence of it is that right now, and this is important because there's a lot of lies out there around what's happening. You, you go to some of these rooms and they say things like, oh, I drove by a hospital and there's nobody, there's nobody there. From the outside, it looks like it's completely empty. Well, the numbers are, are going to say uh, otherwise. You know how January 2021 was like one of the worst months for hospitalizations? For the doctors, you all know what I'm talking about. So uh, January 22s are potentially worse, not because the absolute number of hospitalizations are higher, but because the workforce is smaller. John has said this. Other people have said this. When people talk about beds, we're not talking about furniture, y'all. We're talking about people to serve patients. And that's where the, so now supply and demand has completely gone off the rocker. If you are out there and you don't know somebody that has had COVID in the last you know, month, uh, you're not asking people because a lot of people have had COVID in the last month and it's only gonna get worse. So this is the reality of on the ground what's happening with COVID and in the midst of all of this, another big, big thing happened. And, and if it's okay with everybody, I wanted to move on to the interview that Robert Malone did with Joe Rogan that was removed by YouTube for misinformation. And, you know, I wanted to comment on that first part, uh, if that's okay with everybody. Be, before, before you do, I just wanted to make the point, you know, uh, it, was, it was, I think, nearly a week ago uh, that the CDC said that uh, healthcare workers who are asymptomatic should go into work. And, you know, everybody, you know, immediately reacted, you know, to how crazy that sounds. Uh, and I, I got it immediately. They are really scared about uh, the tidal wave that's gonna gonna overwhelm the medical system. And it's, it's, it's like they, they were cornered into that decision. And Ellie, uh, you, you, you may recall, Manaz, uh, 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 let John finish and then uh, I'll, I'll have you next, please. No, I'm just gonna say, Ellie, probably remembers that I was not one of those um, who succumbed to the knee-jerk reaction of how horrible to tell people who are positive to work. Um, but the observation that um, I made at that time, and I'll make again now, is that I practiced in one of the worst flu epidemics where, people, where the, the hallways of the hospital were lined with gurneys for 24 hours plus, and they'd never been seen because of the mismatch between supply with sick nurses and doctors out sick and the huge bolus of patients coming in with acute disease. So, um, and Dennis, you probably remember, remember this conversation. What I was saying is let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The baby is that we're approaching a situation right now in some uh, regions and it'll be pervasive in the next two weeks and then it'll subside in a month from now where there simply are um, unevaluated, untreated, severely ill COVID people lying on gurneys in hallways with no doctors and no nurses to take care of them, both because of the great resignation and burnout and because those individuals are actually sick. And so under those conditions, back in the flu epidemic I'm referring to, and it wasn't 1917 in case you're wondering, um, back in that flu epidemic, 
uh, doctors and nurses voluntarily came in and worked sick because they know if they weren't there, people would be waiting 28 hours before they were seen instead of 24 hours before they were seen for influenza. So what we need to be very careful of is that that Did John stop for me or for everybody else? Uh, there there was a call him. that that seems to have. Yeah, up to you, Ringham. Yeah, so I will say, what I was referring to was not the fact that they made that decision. What I was referring to was the multiple communication mistakes that have been made by administration officials across all the major institutions. It's okay. <laughs> to say, we don't know what to do, we're buckling under pressure. Hey, it's okay to say, hey, everyone, we need, like in the beginning of the uh, pandemic, when they said no one needed masks, and saying why. We need to start treating the American populace as adults and tell them the why behind the what. And I know that it's easy to be paternalistic because we've seen the worst of America in the past few years. But you know why we're seeing that? It's because of that behavior. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'm, I'm telling you, that that's what's sowing doubt right now in America and allowing people like Robert Malone and others to continue to sow these doubts because we're treating Americans like they are like they don't know any better. And that, that's what's causing people to really push away from it. And I think most people were not anti uh, the, the return to work, uh, you know, if you're asymptomatic after five days, what people were saying is maybe it makes sense to get another test there. And it sounds like they were making decisions saying, hey, in an ideal state, we would have done this, but we don't have enough tests right now. So in reality, if you're asymptomatic after five days, please wear a mask incredibly uh, judiciously. So then that way we can make sure that people, other people don't get sick, but you should feel free to come back. I think that's, you're having a real nuanced conversation with people and treating them with respect, which I don't think that the institutions are doing currently. And I think it's okay to say that. Um, that's at least my thought. Uh, John, I think I'm not sure if you're back yet, but Manaz, I wanted to give you the floor and then Edward. Oh, thank you. Um, hello, everyone. I mean, I just want to add, yes, um, we, we are having a staffing crisis. We don't have a choice. If the staff is symptomatic, um, we are allowing them to work. And this is nothing new that just happened uh, with the new variant. When COVID started, we had to have, like, remember the isolation um, was like 14 days then at the beginning they had to have a negative test and all that then uh, the decision came uh, from department of health and cdc back then they can work in a COVID unit and if they are symptomatic and they are well enough they are feeling well enough to come and uh, um, do their job so uh, as everyone knows who is working in a healthcare it just when you have a staffing crisis from the top administration, the executive team coming and hands on deck and everybody's helping to take care of the patients. So they cannot do the really clinical care and this staffing crisis, I think we should admire the one that are positive and they are willing uh, to take care of the patient. They put N95 on, they are fitted, they have face shield, they follow all the infection prevention guideline, and they are taking care of the patients because we are really exhausted in frontline and we don't have any choice, unfortunately. Thank you. 
Thank you, Manas, for everything you do. Jeez, uh, it sounds like hell out there. Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to transition away from this because we know we've been talking a lot about what's been going on. And I think it's easy, again, for people like me and others to point fingers and be critical. Um, you know, uh, I know that the job that they have in uh, changing environments not easy, uh, but yet, you know, we also have to be open to criticizing poor communication, which I think is clear in the situation of, you know, it's not about, uh, the, and again, I understand where you're coming from, Ali, but I don't think it's, I think we have to be careful not to, not to call a spade a spade. Uh, uh, so here's, here's uh, the, the, the big thing that I wanted to address today. And uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, this is going to, we're going to stay on this pin link. I'm not going to pin the link to any access to that Robert Malone uh, Spotify for a variety of reasons, partially because people might report us as misinformation, uh, which then will close the room, uh, which has happened before uh, to a colleague uh, uh, that was trying to talk about that podcast. Uh, and secondly, because you can't really find a link to that podcast in most places. YouTube took it down. And I, I think Spotify still has it up. So you can, if you want to look at it, you can go to Spotify and listen to it. Um, Dr. So, Dennis, just interject. I did DM you if you want to, for whatever reason you want to use it. I DM'd you Dr. Copeland, the link to Dr. Copeland's room that he did on Clubhouse that I mentioned earlier. So it's in your DMs if you want to. Oh, okay. Uh, so usually uh, I'm, I'll try to pin it in a little bit, but I just wanted to leave. I think that there's something worthwhile about leaving this, this Atlantic article for people to see what's actually going on in the real world and the hysteria. Uh, actually, hilariously, uh, some of the things that uh, that he said, which was, I thought, very fascinating um, around what's going on in his opinion with COVID. And so for people that don't know, let's get everybody on the same page like Anna-Marie said, let's level set. Robert Malone, who, who uh, Robert Malone, MD, uh, was on the Joe Rogan experience uh, a couple of weeks ago to speak about his perspective on what happened, what's going on with COVID, and specifically on the mRNA vaccines. And what I wanted to do was to have a critical appraisal of the things that he said, starting with who he is. So for people that don't know, Robert Malone claims that he was one of the founders of the mRNA vaccine. Um, and mRNA technology. So there is some merit to that claim. So I did a pretty decent deep dive, um, but other fact checkers and reporters have documented this quite well. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Robert Malone. So he's a, he's a medical physician. Uh, he does not practice anymore, but there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, he contributed to some of some very important early research. So a pair of papers where he was the co-author uh, with two other researchers in 1989 and six other researchers in 1990 showed that mRNA could be delivered into the cells using lipids and that doing so in mice would trigger the production of new proteins in the cells where these were delivered. So hopefully that makes sense. What, what, what he did research on was how to package and deliver mRNA, which is messenger RNA, into the cell using a lipid carrier and how 
and the way he proved that they were delivered into the cell was not through fluorescence imaging or some other imaging modality. It was by the production of proteins in from that cell, which means that the cell not only accepted the mRNA, but then used the mRNA to develop proteins using its own protein development translation machinery, as we would say. Okay, so I want to be very clear about this. If anybody has questions about that, I want to say that is the thing that he did. Why is that important? Well, the two papers were the first reference used in uh, a 2019 review of mRNA vaccine technology. And if you think about it, it's like, again, lots of merit to that. That was one of the first papers that showed this. So just want to be very clear about this. The development of today's vaccine technology was built on the work of many scientists. <laughs> and I will say that they it would not have been possible without some of the work that Robert Malone and others did. But the big breakthrough in this was in the early 2000s for people that are not familiar. And it was from my alma mater's, uh, my alma mater, and I'm a little bit biased here. So if you've got, if you're from a different alma mater and you want to talk about some of the work that you did uh, or your your colleagues did, that's fine. I'm going to show off about Penn. So Drew Wiseman, who's obviously a huge name, uh, Drew Wiseman and uh, Catalin Carrico, uh, they in the early 2000s uncovered a way to, and this is an important one, and this is the big big one actually, uncovered a way for the immune system actually to avoid that injected mRNA and not to have a crazy host response. So the work that Robert Malone did was in a Petri dish. And the work that he did was in an in vitro experiment where you had cells and you injected mRNA into the solution with a nanolipid carrier. So a nano, like a, like a lipid carrier or a fat, a fat particle. You put the mRNA inside and you put it into the Petri dish with cells. The cells ingested it, used the mRNA, to make new proteins. That was his work. The bigger work was how do you prevent that in a real life situation uh, from uh, your immune system from killing that mRNA or uh, and, and causing a crazy full body immune reaction, which if anybody knows gene therapy uh, has been an issue in gene therapy, but in vaccine technology, we, uh, we have safe and effective vaccines that don't have this issue. So it does not surprise me that he views mRNA technology to be similar to gene therapy, despite their complete different gene therapy, just to, for, to be clear, because he uses those words quite a lot. Gene therapy is when something gets incorporated into the genes of that cell. I'll say that again. Gene therapy is when you're putting some genetic material into a solution that then gets taken in by the cell and that gets integrated into the genetic makeup of that cell. Is that clear? That is what gene therapy is. mRNA is that mRNA is sitting inside the cell, but it's not going into the actual DNA. It's just sitting inside the cell and it's never even getting into the nucleus. And your normal uh, cells machinery is converting that mRNA into proteins. And that's really important. That is incredibly important. And if that's not clear, someone say, hey, Danish, can you explain that again? Because I'm happy to do that. That is probably the most important part of this uh, from some of the things that he said. So I wanted to make sure that that was clear.
All right. Uh, so, quick, quick, quick additional mention. Um, there was a paper a while ago, or a preprint, not a paper. It didn't make it out of peer review. That claimed to to find um, that uh, uh, parts of the the um, spike protein were integrated into the host genome. That was done in cancer cells that overexpress telomerase, which is a reverse transcriptase. If you don't have a situation where there's anything to reverse transcribe RNA into DNA it'll never make it into the host genome. Uh, so that was a pure artifact for, for anybody who, who knows of that uh, result. Is it my, my phone that's just gone quiet? Yeah, I, I was going to ask the same question. Uh, yeah. Jeez, everyone's Sorry, just quiet. Everyone was silent. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dr. Danish, you were muted, and we can hear you now. Okay, perfect. So what I was going to say is, in a normal healthy cell, I don't know what you guys heard, but in a normal healthy cell, and this is important, and again, bear with me all, uh, because I want to make sure everybody's on the same exact page. DNA gets transcribed into RNA, which then gets translated into protein okay what we're doing with the mrna vaccines is we're actually skipping the transcription step and giving mrna to a select few cells that are then translating that into protein which then triggers an immune reaction and allows your immune system to make antibodies and t-cell and cell-mediated adaptive immunity to the spike protein i want to be very clear about that and what 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 Ellie was bringing up was around what what in certain cells you can have, uh, you know, in certain cells and even with certain viruses, you can have something called reverse transcription or reverse transcriptase is the enzyme. And that can actually take RNA and make DNA out of it. That is not normal. That is not a normal process. And I want to be very clear about this. So some of the, the things that have been uh, brought up have been around you know, comparing, <laughs> uh, and again, th this is the good thing and the bad thing about Penn. Gene therapy, there's a very well-known case of gene therapy at Penn that went incredibly poorly, uh, that has been well-documented. And so you can look up gene therapy, University of Pennsylvania, and you'll see that there's, we talk about it in, in our uh, bioethics courses during med school and other places. It's something that we really hold deep. So gene therapy is something very different than what, what's being done. And that's important because he should know better. He should know better. Uh, because he was in the space. And so I wanted to kind of walk through that. He, yes, was he involved in the early research of mRNA delivery into cells and the development of proteins from that? Sure. Was he involved at all in the development of any of the current mRNA vaccines? The answer is absolutely not. If somebody has a retort to that, I'm happy to, to hear it now. But I wanted to make sure that that was clear. That is something that he keeps saying that he, and people, you hear them say this all the time. Oh, he created uh, mRNA vaccines. That is Dr. not the case. Danish, it would be just like if I start claiming since I work in the viral vector related, um, uh, you know, procedures uh, during the cardiac uh, um, uh, cath uh, to develop 
um, you know uh, new cells in the MI uh, uh, driven um, you know tissues. Uh, there was like this study I was part of and we were using the similar technology where uh, we were using viral vectors to transmit the RNA into the uh, myocytes to induce a new cell production and I'm, I can um, reveal what happened to the study but it's just like that that you are partly <laughs> yeah uh, if anybody you know, ever uses a yeah, vaccine ever uses a vaccine you. technique or mrna related viral vectors or something like that and i start claiming oh i played a part in development of the mrna vaccine is like totally nonsensical <laughs> and and again it's 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 completely non scientific and non academic to say it's not the kind of stuff that people that actually do the work say. Not at all. I have yet, to, I, and again, you know, I uh, when I was in med school, Carl June and uh, his colleagues were working on uh, CAR T cell therapy. You would never hear Carl June saying, "I'm the father of CAR T." Exactly. Cell. I mean, it's just something that, yeah, you know, it's like you know, there's, it's, 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 it's unheard of, and and I think that that's that should be red flag number one. But let let's spare him that. Again, he's proud of the work that he's done. He should be proud. I. And I will say, I don't think, I really don't think we would be where we are with mRNA vaccines had people like Robert Malone not done the early work in the 80s. And I think that's worth mentioning. Um, but there are a lot of other people that yeah, also Yeah, but to conclude that, uh, you know, that resulted in the mRNA vaccine is uh, totally like, okay, since uh, somebody invented electricity, that's why Tesla is now invented by them. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's like that. Uh, that I, kind I think of that's relationship. A fair, that's a fair critique. <laughs> sure. So, so okay. And, and so, the, the question a journalist should confront him with is, do you have any hands-on work in vaccine development, right? Because he doesn't. It would uh, simply uh, be used for uh, simple-minded people who don't understand. And I have seen uh, this kind of word salad people use uh, big words, and it can. Er Aram, I want I want to prevent using those kinds of words, and we're not going to label people. If that's okay, Aram. You can no, continue no, your point. No, not I like labeling say, people. The people I'm... are not. Mm -hmm. He has he has convinced some very bright people. I just want to be very oh, clear. He has? People that I respect in other areas. Oh yeah, are you kidding? People that are incredibly bright. Or swear by the work that he's talking about because he's telling them what they want to hear. Ah. Uh, so I don't want to like label. So people. like I, I he's just, I'm so not sorry, only uh, mentioning uh, his work but using misinformation and com compounding it with lies exactly. and not lady. Oh, okay. So that's yeah. a so different case scenario. He's 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 trying to yeah. So let's let's kind of go into what he's saying. So um, you know, for people that have not heard, he is. Uh, he made a couple of a couple of really big claims. So on Joe Rogan's podcast, he said that it is uh, awful, or he used different words. I'm not going to cuss, but you know, he said that it was nuts for people who have uh, had COVID-19 to get vaccinated. He cited the uh, the vaccine adver adverse event reporting system or VAERS um, to to and and use the words and these are important uh, an explosion of vaccine associated deaths. So I wanted to talk about some of this. We now know more than ever that infection uh, enabled immunity is not robust enough against Omicron. So this is important as compared to Delta or prior variants, 
you are five times higher risk of getting Omicron, even if you've been infected previously. That's what the data says. He's a scientist, right? So let's talk from data. So he's saying that if you've had a prior bout with coronavirus, and I, by the way, I can bring up to stage tons of people that have had coronavirus twice, just an FYI. And, and I actually know someone personally who got coronavirus for the second time and ended up getting hospitalized. So, and they chose not to be vaccinated the whole time. So I know this, someone who got it three times, Dr. Danish. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. And so at the end of the day, we're seeing this just not be a true statement. But I wanted to, to first go into that. Does, does anybody else want to speak to yeah, just, infection-mediated yeah, immunity? Yeah, I just want to Go ahead, John. Yeah, I just want to say that... Um, you know, the, the reason we get an updated flu vaccine every year is because there's shift and drift in, in the influenza virus. Um, actually, more it, it mutates more frequently than the COVID virus has. And that's why we get updates in the vaccines. And if um, having the influenza once immunized you for life against all other variants, um, we wouldn't have annual uh, influenza vaccination campaigns. And the evidence that vaccines uh, are superior to a natural infection as uh, prevention of serious uh, disease, hospitalization, and death is so overwhelming from so many different observations, whether it's the measure of antibody levels, the measure of T-cell reactivity, the measure of what happened in Manaus, Brazil, between the original wild variant and the beta variant that swept through the same community, affecting 70% of the population, like six months apart. What we recently saw in South Africa with Delta infecting nearly everybody and then Omicron infecting nearly everybody right on the heels. Not not six months later, but in the middle of a Delta pandemic in South Africa, Omicron came in and reinfected all the same people. So it's not like the vaccines are the perfect solution that they prevent you from ever, anyone ever getting sick with any future variant of uh, the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, it's that the, the vaccine, if you had to choose between one or the other, pick the vaccine. But if you've already been infected, get the vaccine anyway, because the evidence is also overwhelming that if you've been fully vaccinated and boosted and you get a breakthrough case of Omicron, you now have super immunity for the current and future variants. And there are people in Clubhouse who've been infected three times, the third time, despite being fully vaccinated and boosted. So, um, you know, this, this is an extraordinary virus and it requires extraordinary measures and natural infection as proposed in Sweden, as proposed in the uh, Barrington Declaration, um, is is does not conform to m massive amount of data to the contrary. And I just want to kind of go into the evidence. So here's the evidence that he spoke of. So the, on one side, you have evidence that has been not only provided by the pharmaceutical companies, which we should look at with a level of skepticism. They have a conflict of interest by definition. And you know, to mention those as the only source of evidence that we have today is complete lies. We've had independent uh, organizations. We have independent academics. We've had tons of labs across the country and across the world continue to look at this, uh, at this data on both vaccine uh, adverse effects 
to look at vaccine effectiveness and vaccine effectiveness in terms of reinfection, in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of deaths, in terms of long COVID. If you don't know that that's happening, then you haven't been coming up to coming to health news around the world every week. I can tell you right now, every week we're talking about new data that's coming out from independent organizations that do not have any support from any of these uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies that are doing the, the, the research on the ground. And this is what is the greatest trick that has ever been played on educated, smart people. It is, hey, I'm not saying that they're bad people. I'm saying, I'm just asking questions. I'm just a guy asking questions. And that is what Robin Malone's been doing. That's what Pierre Corey has been doing. They're saying there are, again, point A, pharmaceutical companies do awful things. Can I tell you their playbook? Does anybody want to hear their playbook? Their playbook is very straightforward. And by the way, when you watch it, you will see this. Playbook, uh, act one. Pharmaceutical companies are awful. Look at the opioid crisis. Look at Biox. Play number one. Okay. Play number two, I'm just a guy. I've been in the industry, I know how it works, I see all the awfulness that's been going on. I have no, no financial connection to anything, and I will talk about that, because they do. They've been selling books, they've been selling keynotes, they've been selling uh, themselves, they are making an entire industry behind them, this is all about them. Number three, so again, I am not in the pocket of big pharma, I am not this person. Act number three is, so act number one, pharma people are bad. Act number two, I'm an expert and I have no horse in this race. Act number three, there's this unproven, unknown technology called the mRNA vaccine. By the way, it's not been around for a hundred years. It's new technology. Do you know what's in there? Do you know what is possible? 30 years from now, will you be able to look your kid in the eyes and say to them that you made the right decision about giving them a vaccine? This is the go-to playbook. It's uncertainty. That's what he did throughout. If you watch that interview, the thing he kept on saying is, hey, for people that are super sick, it makes complete sense. But for you, for you who is not as sick, which by the way, high-risk people represent like 60% of American adults, just an FYI. If you don't think you're high risk, you're high risk. If you're obese, you're high risk. If you're above the age of 60, you're high risk. So I just wanna be clear about this. Most of us are high risk. Uh, if they have anything that makes them immunocompromised like me, uh, they're high risk. So I just wanna be clear, but, but the average person that's listening to this podcast is like, I'm not high risk, I'm healthy. I, 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 I eat salad once a week. Uh, so you know, the, the, it's, it's this clear, like I'm trying to build uncertainty, right? Like you don't know, and he's not wrong. I wanna be very clear. We don't have 30 years of data on the mRNA vaccine, but we also don't have 30 years of data on what happens to you after COVID. It's a trade-off. You have to make decisions. And the decisions are, we've done study on this technology before. It's been studied by his own admission since the 80s. He's actually admitting that this technology has been around since the 80s by saying that I'm the, I'm the quote-unquote inventor. So I just wanna be clear about, and the, the greatest game ever played is to then say that the evidence is not good. And in the same breath, saying the evidence developed by the scientists is not good, but the evidence developed by, by the way, VAERS, I can go in right now and say I got the vaccine and I grew 
an extra leg and it will get published in bears go try it go try it hey danish can i uh, come in on that real quickly go ahead john yeah, and, and a couple of things, conflicts of interest, communication, VAERS. Um, so conflicts of interest uh, with pharma, yes, um, that their business model is is to sell medications they make. So we, we always have to be very cautious. That's why the FDA is normally very uh, critical. Um, as far as VAERS goes, um, what you just described about anybody's encouraged to enter anything that happens subsequent to a vaccine. And there are around the world, there are millions of people who die every day long before COVID came. And when you're vaccinating hundreds of millions and billions of people in a, a very short period of time, there are going to be lots of deaths occurring within two to three weeks of the vaccine that have nothing to do with the vaccine. So here's the other side of that equation, and it, and it still concerns me. Why don't we have already an NIH-sponsored study of a random sample of these reported bears deaths chasing down the truth with an independent blue ribbon panel of clinicians and scientists saying this one might have been related to the vaccine this one certainly was not and this one we can't be sure because we don't have enough data why don't we have that simple random sample of the bears database to respond to all these people who have no statistical rigor in their assertions that bears demonstrates um, adverse consequences of the vaccine. So I think the public that's not scientific or statistically sophisticated is understandably confused when someone stands up and points to bears and says, look at all these deaths that occurred right after the vaccine without having a legitimate um, scientific approach. With they, they can't do all of them. There's just too many um, in, in the VAERS database, and it's too hard to chase down the data. But why not a random sample? Why, not, why has that study not been done? It, it perplexes me endlessly. Can I but, add but one what, more study? I'm sorry, can uh, I add one last study that's really, really perplexes me as well? I think everybody in this room is, where's the long COVID study? Where is that dog? Where, is it underneath some papers? I mean, I'll just stop Long COVID that. study in, in terms the UK. Of, it's in the UK. It's the first. Exactly. If you, if you if you PTR my bio, the very first reference. I only put two references in there: one on diet, and the other one on the UK biobank exactly. study on long COVID. It's really worth reading, and it's terrifying. And, and uh, which, exactly, but that that's kind of my point: is that we have we have to go to one study in the UK, right? That that's kind of I'm kind of picking up on what your point is, which is like, why isn't the American CDC and just the whole you know, just the people that need to be doing it, just doing it here from the U.S. and really coordinating and and starting a, a tracking study of people who get COVID. I mean, it's a very difficult question to answer. And everybody with long COVID is horrified at being told, oh, you're just going through menopause and this happens or, you know, oh, we see this a lot in young women, but we don't know what it, you know, they're being discounted at scale for lack of uh, a, a focus and and I don't know whether to attribute it to deer in the headlights or because of the pandemic itself or to attribute it to lack of curiosity or to attribute it to a misallocation of funds but other countries are doing a better job so so I wanted to make sure that we walk through everything so again the key here that the key game being played and I, again this is the beauty right has bears shown 
deaths that are associated associated loosely. I want to be clear, there's no cause, right? Somebody got the vaccine and a week later, like John mentioned, they passed away. That is was reported to VAERS. Have those been verified though? No. So he won't, you know, again, not just Robert Malone. This is the, the playbook. People see what they want to see. They talk about what they want to talk about. And then they omit what could potentially be a rebuttal of this. So didn't talk about the quality issues with VAERS. Didn't at all, by the way. Did not talk about the fact that there is high quality evidence from physicians and clinicians and academics that are not supported in any way by pharmaceutical companies that show that vaccines save lives and that it's safe and effective and that we haven't seen long term issues with these types of vaccines. And it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating approach. And, and again, it's, it's, it's a masterclass in misinformation, a masterclass. So let's walk through the rest. So then the next thing that he brought up was that hospitals are so financially incentivized to claim COVID-19 as the cause of patient deaths that a, a hypothetical, and these are the words that came out of his mouth, okay? That a hypothetical patient with a bullet hole to the head would be ruled as a COVID-19 fatality if they tested positive. Now I have physicians on the stage. If that does not raise your eyebrows, I don't know what will. If you've ever signed a death certificate, you would know that's not how it works. When you sign a death certificate, you talk about the cause of death and then underneath. And that usually is the thing that actually killed the person. And then you talk about the, the, the potential big risk factor. And then you then talk about any associated exacerbating factors. That's usually the approach that I've used with death certificates in the past. And I know a lot of my colleagues do the same. The fact that he said that somebody that would walk in with a bullet hole to the head would be ruled out as a COVID fatality if they tested positive is absolutely incorrect. In fact, the research shows, and this is important because we don't talk about this enough. This is our mistake, not his. This is our, and by our, I mean the medical community. We are crappy at comms. We need to get better because we have not talked about the fact that we're actually undercounting COVID deaths. Because if somebody comes in with COVID, what is the thing that usually kills them? It's not just respiratory distress. It is clotting issues. They could be on ECMO and then clot the ECMO. There could be a million other things that are happening. And we usually put that as the number one cause. And so we're actually undercounting COVID deaths. And that's the thing. That's the honest truth of it. Are we potentially overcounting COVID cases? Actually, the data says otherwise. So here's the data. The data is think about yourself. I'm going to give you personal anecdote for yourself because people don't believe data because these people are sowing doubt in the evidence itself. That is their game. But I'm going to tell you now that Omicron is here. We all know somebody that's been sick. Of the people that you know that have been sick, how many of them were, uh, were found positive with a PCR test or found positive in a doctor's office or found positive in a urgent care setting? And how many of them were found positive at home with a home test? All those people that were found positive with a home test, are not in the current count case counts. That is the reality. We are undercounting cases right now. So can I, I add know something? It sounds great, but that's really the truth of it. Manas? Yeah, I mean, I agree with the positive cases. Uh, with the death, I mean, I mean, it's just I'm dealing with the quality and uh, COVID data uh, since this. Um, pandemic has started. This is how they are looking at COVID death. 
So when the doctor signed a death certificate, so there's a primary reason for death, and then there are active diagnoses, like 10 of them, that is added in that um, um, underlying diagnosis. And if there is a COVID-19 diagnosis, that death is not the primary reason, but it's count as a COVID death. And I tell you why I am, I know that for a fact. I'm, I mean, there is, this is a wrong information that they say the providers, if they report more death, COVID death, they get more, centi uh, they get more centivized. That's, that's a false claim. Actually, it's opposite. If you report less death COVID, uh, the uh, government help or centivized uh, help that it comes to the uh, facility, especially the post-acute care, is more, and it just it it just you rank in quality in higher quality of care uh, compared to your to the other organization. So in in reality, is opposite. We don't like to report death, but with what we found, like we had like let's say ten COVID. A related actual like they were it was their primary diagnosis they actually died in that course of COVID treatment and we counting that as our COVID death for our facility then we realized the report is like 14 and when we, we uh, touch base with Department of Health they said the system it's calculating that because it still count as a COVID active COVID diagnosis and you know the rule is just in the past six months if somebody has an ICD-10 code and uh, there is a physician documentation you count it as an active diagnosis for that specific individual. Thank you. So I just want to be clear about this Manaz. I will disagree here because I know that there was a really good article by Bob Wachter, W-A-C-H-T-E-R, uh, talking about deaths from COVID versus deaths with COVID. And uh, what, when we count COVID deaths, we are not referring to deaths with COVID. And I think that's a very, very important point. And I will, uh, uh, Dr. Pak-Teng, can you, can you clarify this for us? Um, yeah, I just want to sure. make sure that's a very important point. So this is Dr. Pak-Teng. So like in that exa exact example, like if someone was shot in the head and they happen to have COVID, that's a COVID death, that would be wrong. Like as just to exactly clarify, so, you know, the top part, there's two different sections of a death certificate. There's the primary reason for death. You put that in how many, like how long, like some, so someone was shot in the head. They uh, probably didn't live that many, that long, maybe, maybe hours or depends. Um, you put how many hours they had that primary thing going on for, or hours, days, whatever. Then you put things that contributed. So you wouldn't, like, even if that person had COVID-19, there's another section that just says other. Other things that person had going on that wasn't likely to directly contribute to the primary cause of death. So if someone, like if I was filling out a death certificate for someone that was shot in the head, died from that, and like died from the bleed, died from the gunshot wound, or whatever else was going on, um, I would put, and they happen to have COVID-19 because it's literally everywhere, um, you would put that in that bottom section that they happen to be having COVID. So that, 
you know, it's, those things are definitely counted separately. Um, I'll say like what um, Manaz was saying, there's different counts like that happen in the hospital. So different counts, like for example, every week we get at my hospital, I get the list of how many people are in-house with COVID, in-house with COVID in the ICU. And then now, because so many people are coming in asymptomatic um, or very mildly symptoms with COVID, we have new numbers that are reported, people in-house with COVID with a different primary reason for admission. So this is like actually a new statistic a lot of people are putting out to their hospitals and, and reporting because so many people, thankfully to vaccinations, um, are coming in and thankfully because Omicron's not as uh, severe as the prior uh, iterations, so many people are coming in. Like I have so many people that I'm admitting to the hospital, blah, 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 cholecystitis, positive with COVID, with COVID, all these things with COVID. So these are new data sets that on mass are coming into the hospitals and those things are being looked at very differently by the hospitals and they get billed differently and they they cause different uh levels of reimbursement but i think the primary thing that makes me so mad is this lie this like lie about people like doctors themselves getting more money if you diagnose covid deaths uh hospitals themselves getting more money if you diagnose covid death it's just straight up wrong and it's something that's been perpetuated by this disinformation wheel um that you so exactly that playbook is like every person others that you explain it's just in a time of fear in a time of uncertainty you add more uncertainty and people just have like um decision like inertia and that's what these people want and it's so it, it breaks my heart it, it's been a long long very difficult two years for everyone in the medical system and we care so much and you know i was just what john you said before like this phase two being in phase two is really rough on people in the medical profession and um people are quitting on mass but like these little snippets of disinformation and causing confusion people have had wide term detrimental effects and so anything we can do to really clarify this for people to give them more empowerment to make good health decisions um i'm all for so thanks thank you dr Pekteng. i was going to mention that the other the other lies that were told which are interesting uh were um uh, around uh he said that there's a state in india called uttar pradesh uh for the desis in the room they'll know what uttar pradesh is uh that it crushed covid using an early treatment package that featured ivermectin we now know that ivermectin doesn't work so i don't know what they did but they did something uh but it was not ivermectin we know ivermectin the data has come out now in multiple independent trials independent trials including uh, one from Canada that was work that was partnering with an institution in Brazil. Uh, you know, it's one thing to have uh, some level of coordination if you're trying to 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 suppress information, but it's really hard to do that in every country and every place. And so I think it's again, it's it's what Dr. Pakteng just said, which is it's it's about inertia. They want people to slow down their decision making and to look for alternatives. So it's 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 all about hey, this thing doesn't have evidence, but look at this crappy evidence over here. You have high level evidence on one place where they're saying that the basis of the data itself is a lie. 
right? Which then is their entire playbook. It's incredibly effective, to be honest. And here's another piece of data that is actually really crappy data, VARES, for example, or their BS ivermectin studies that actually have now been retracted. Um, and when we do high quality data to evaluate that, you know, it doesn't come out. You know what he didn't talk about? At least that I don't remember. He didn't bring up fluvoxamine, which actually is an early treatment option that works, that actually has positive data. I don't know why. I wonder why, right? Just like they, they say, I wonder why. I'm going to start doing the same thing to them. I wonder why he didn't talk about that because it's not as popular. Um, the other thing that he mentioned out loud, uh, he was like, well, you know, I wonder if the if President Joe Biden actually took a vac, you know, the, the, the shot that he got was actually the vaccine. This is a scientist? This is the scientist they got? Talking it, about things like that? It's I think Joe Rogan discourse. said that. I think Joe Rogan said that, not But he didn't Dr. say Mark. anything to that. He's a scientist. Right? Uh, right. He I didn't refute it. Sure it was attributed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Joe Rogan said that, but what I remember is that he said nothing. And I think that's important. And again, we have to make thank you for keeping me honest, guys. I appreciate that. And then the other big thing, I've got to say, this was my favorite. There's a great article. I can't remember who it's by. Um, actually, we're gonna. I'm gonna pin it. I'm gonna try to look for it for a second. But uh, it was. Um, oh, it was Bruce Lee. Actually, uh, let me. Bruce Lee, not not the former, uh, but Bruce Lee, the physician. Um, he's a he's a writer for Forbes. I just pinned the link. Uh, so Robert Malone <laughs> used this term. Uh, and this is kind of a cheeky article, but he used this term called mass formation psychosis. Um, and he said, Malone claimed, and these are his words, our government is out of control on this and they are lawless. They completely disregard bioethics. They completely disregard the federal common rule. They have broken all the rules that I know of that I've been trained on for years and years. These mandates on, exper on an experimental vaccine are explicitly illegal. Uh, so to say that we completely disregarded bioethics is kind of a interesting point. And again, that's not that's an opinion clearly. Uh, so I'm going to leave it to that. But uh, his point that the COVID-19 vaccination requirements are explicitly inconsistent with the Nuremberg Code, they expli they're explicitly inconsistent with the Belmont report, um, are again, you know, these broad assertions that can be seen as opinions, but, but when you hear it as a common person, you start thinking, oh, wow, man, they're breaking a lot of these like things that I know about, the Nuremberg Code and the Belmont report. And by the way, if you've been in any, any of these anti-vaccine rooms, those same words are parroted. So to believe that he is not uh, the, the ma again, masterclass in misinformation is, is kind of nuts. The point that I wanted to go to was experimental. So this is an important word that has been used quite a lot. It's hard to say that now that they're actually FDA approved and billions of people have got them. These vaccines are no longer experimental. I just want to be very clear. And the EUA does not actually say experimental. It it means emergency use authorization. And I know that that sounds silly to most of us, but actually there are people out there that assume that the E in EUA represents experimental, which it does not. The point that they're making is that we're doing post-vaccine studies and continuing to follow as an experiment, as any good scientist would, 
it's you know phase four studies in evaluating how these drugs actually these vaccines actually uh, perform in uh, in uh, in the real world. So you know when we when we talk about in scientific studies, phase one is about safety. Phase two is usually about effect uh, efficacy. Phase three is about effectiveness. And usually with effectiveness, you take into account the real world implications of people living their lives. But in phase four studies, we usually, and the reason why we have phase four studies, by the way, is because of drugs like Vioxx. Post-market studies is why we have those. And so to call this an experimental drug is absolutely clear that they are trying to assert and, 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 and confuse the average person. And again, very smart people are falling for this masterclass in misinformation. So the point so that he Dr. made Dr. Danish, isn't it like the similar kind of mindset when the White House chose in 2020, Dr. Emmanuel, if you guys remember, who claimed that hydroxychloroquine was the treatment for COVID-19 and we don't have to worry about anything because it uh, COVID-19 has a treatment. And she said that she has personally treated 330 patients and she was given the podium from White House to speak about it on all channels and her name last name is dr emmanuel but actually her last name is dr wandaku she is from louisiana especially from where i am i know her personally because she had two or three malpractice uh, uh you know uh, uh what do you call them like when she was accused of malpractice three different counts and she evaded the louisiana legal system ran to houston started her practice over there in another name became a church pastor and claimed that a demon will close Facebook, blah, blah, blah. She was really celebrated by the right wing. And from there, she was picked up by White House. She still have those illegal malpractice claims against her because she, uh, you know, mishandled uh, patients here in state. We all know her really well and how, um, what do I call it? She shouldn't, her license should be taken away. But she was given podium in the White House in 2020 under a different name, Dr. Emanuel, and claimed that COVID-19 was treatable. So what do you expect when people like those who are criminal are given uh, <laughs> voice? And uh, my mind is still baffled. Nobody's talking about her uh, and the fact that how uh, White House at that time in 2020 chose that kind of a criminal person uh, who claimed to be a physician uh, and uh, we we need to take these examples and highlight them to show the level of incompetence and wrong decisions that were made so i want to make sure that we, we we also talk a little bit about his his term mass formation psychosis so what he was referring to is this unfounded theory that's been spreading online and again, this is a guy that claims to be a scientist that suggests that millions of people have been hypnotized, <laughs> sorry, uh, hypnotized into believing these mainstream ideas to combat COVID-19. That is actually the theory that he said. It's called, if you Google it, you're gonna laugh your ass off. Uh, but, you know, again, he claimed this. It's not a real thing. It has been debunked by all the clinical psychologists that are out there. This is not a real thing. No one is doing hypnosis on people. If they're doing it, they're doing a really bad job. They're doing a really bad job. Hypnosis tends to work better, I'm assuming. Uh, but that, that's one of the claims that he made. And, you know, uh, 
what he was trying to equate this to, and again, playbook, this is just, just masterclass. So he said, you know, that this concept of mass formation psychosis, just in case you guys Google it, it was from basically European intellectual inquiry into figuring out what happened in the 20s and 30s in Nazi Germany and or in Germany. And, uh, you know, there were highly educated, highly intelligent people that went mad. And how did that happen? The answer, mass formation psychosis. And that's what they're claiming is going on, uh, which, by the way, it was uh, was just absolutely a ridiculous comparator. Uh, we're saying that people believing in a safe and effective vaccine is equivalent to people believing in the 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 rise of the Third Reich. So, um, if if anything, it would be more accurate to say that uh, the belief in disinformation right now is the mass formation psychosis. And I think that's what's so interesting. So, I wanted to make sure that we I, I wanted to give everybody else a chance to kind of weigh in on their experience, you know, what they found. I want to keep it to specifically the interview, because I want to make sure that we don't veer off of it. It's important that we talk about, if I missed any major, it's really hard to kind of pick on every single aspect of the uh, interview. Like Dr. Copeland, like Ken was saying, Dr. Copeland did that for like 24 hours or something ridiculous. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, he was uh, really kind of going in deep and making sure that every aspect of it was addressed. I want, I tried to address the major sources of disinformation. And actually, more importantly, I want everybody to recognize the playbook. The best thing we can do, and the reason why I wanted to bring it up today, was because there is a playbook. When you go into these rooms, they're all following the same playbook. And, and by the way, one part of the playbook that I did not bring up is, hey, if you want to learn more, go to this website, follow up here, get some ivermectin from my, from my sources, get this, do that the call to action is the most potent part of this because if you can't trust in the vaccines then you have to trust them and if you have to trust them you have to pay them and that is the real play here so i wanted to make sure does anybody else have any other things that i completely missed i may have i just want to make sure that i address all the big ones if I could, if I, just because it came up on, on, on Copeland's thing a little bit, and, and I'm not a doctor, by the way, and most people know that here, but I have spent my entire life professionally looking at statistics, both as a public policy analyst, Wall Street analyst. So one of the things that he tried to address is how people selectively use statistics, and that's what helps mislead people. So one of the things that you know, I wanted to point out, because as you pointed out, Dr. Danish, some of his stuff... He says, you know, A is true, B is true, but C is not true when he convolutes it all. Um, we know that j j even before COVID ever existed, there are issues with hospitals, get, how they get reimbursed with certain codes. And there have been coding scandals. There's, there's even one hospital that kept two sets of books. This is all before COVID. So, I mean, you could you could pick on all of those things, right? And 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 the, and the whole thing with the classification of deaths, if you, when you look at it, you know, from, from just a statistical standpoint, okay, even if in fact there's some truth to what they're saying, just for the sake of argument, because I think sometimes it helps if you want to convince the other side, you know, give them something and saying, even if we assume this part of the, your argument's true, 
it's still you still can't get to your conclusion. Okay, if there's three quarters of a million deaths from COVID, and you think a quarter of a million of them, two hundred fifty thousand, were misclassified that they were really heart disease or something else and whatever, or they you know multiple modalities or what you know whatever it was. Okay, half a million deaths is still a really bad number. Okay, the fact that the fact that it's not three quarters of a million and it's half a million doesn't help make your case. So that's one thing I wanted to point out is, you know, you have to put statistics in some sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the right word, but context, you know, I guess. context, context. Yeah, right. Exactly. The context. And the other last thing I would say before I, I'm land the plane here is, you know, and you've touched on it. The United States is not the only country in the world. So all these other countries have, you know, the, particularly the industrialized countries, whether it's Great Britain uh, and, and other countries, France, whatever. They, they all have their own doctors and scientists and they do their own studies. So, you know, you know, the, the, these vaccines have been studied and examined and that that has been studied and examined outside of the United States. So you'd have to you'd have to actually argue that there's a worldwide conspiracy among all of these major countries, which is absolutely insane. So and, and I'll just leave it there. Thanks. Where did uh Go ahead. It's Erica. Sorry, I'm stuck. <laughs> I was like, I, it sounds like uh, it sounds like literally like you were stuck in the middle of a sentence. Go ahead, Erica. No, I, yeah, I'm literally stuck. Like between the the Nazi comparisons and the Nuremberg Code, um, like how did he get this way? You know what I mean? Like where does the grift come from, other than the monetary? Um, incentivization of sending people to his website to buy the ivermectin hydroxychloroquine vitamin cocktail like where do, where does the grift come from what does he get from it um, the lies and the misinformation and the leading people astray I what it what motivates someone like this this is the piece that I'm saying he could all he could disagree and just stay silent right like you could just have these thoughts and just not say anything but to actively use a medical degree to misinform um, and to harm is the antithesis of what most of us do every day. It, and it makes our work so much harder. Um, and then the Nazi comparisons to, just to throw over the top, right? Like just to like icing on the disinformation cake. It's really, it's really difficult to, to understand. Yeah, I want to make sure also to, uh, to, to say when I see him speak, and I, I watch the whole thing uh, so that you don't have to, uh, which is probably. Thank you for that, because I just was reading the Forbes highlights <laughs> and it was enough. Yeah, yeah I appreciate I, uh, <laughs> you saving us from the trauma. Yeah, because it's, uh, it's, I think for some of the physicians that have been on the front line, which I have not, I have not been one of the physicians on the front line. I want to be very clear about that because that is a special physician that is actually going through it on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I can't imagine people watching this and, and saying, holy crap, I wish you would see what I see. Uh, you know, and what's, what's interesting is I think, uh, you know, I'll let somebody else weigh in on the motivations behind it, really, because it's really hard to understand. But I think partially there's got to be, you know how we were talking about Elizabeth Holmes earlier and how she truly believed that the, uh, the uh, you know, the end justifies the means. 
I wonder if there's a little bit of that going on over here, where they truly believe that there's something going on uh, that is important that they want to get to. They want to get to a place where these things become a reality. And along the way, they need to build out their brand. They need to build out this company. They need to build out whatever they're doing. They need to go out there and do more keynotes. This is them working. Maybe they truly believe it. And this is the means through which they can amplify their voice. And and maybe that's what they're thinking. I, it's hard to... Aram, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I just want to make, give you a chance to speak. But uh, Sorry. I was just wondering what medical board can do for physicians like that, like Dr. Emmanuel or Dr. Wandaku, who are involved in uh, criminal cases and are still practicing as physicians or uh, being touted as physician by White House or people like him. Uh, we take the oath of do no harm. Uh, that's number one thing. That's the first thing you do. So if uh, a majority of the physicians or uh, academia, you know, people with authority in this uh, field of medicine can determine that these actions are highly harmful for the masses, for people, why can their uh, a legal action be taken and their licenses, uh, you know, revoked or something? I mean, some sort of legal action uh, should be taken for people like them. I, I think the, the interesting part of that would be the the up the you know the outcry from the from the medical community around you know i'm actually very this is interesting in the beginning of the pandemic i think i was much more open to the conversations around like hey we need to do something about this we need to get these people out of the way because it's hurting our ability to respond but i will say that i i don't know if censorship you're not speaking specifically to censorship you're talking about de-licensing uh de-platforming censorship, de-licensing, they kind of have that same punitive impact to them. But Iram, I think the de-licensing is probably the most tenable, like the most the most realistic thing. And I think that the state-based medical boards are, uh, are, are making this move. They put out letters. The federal FSMB has come out and said that, uh, that you know, they're going to per, uh, prosecute some of these things. I think they're going out and doing that. But I will say that you know, when you de-platform somebody, the biggest thing you're doing is giving them an even bigger platform because people are saying, why don't people want me to hear this, right? I think the bigger thing that we need to do is give them a platform and then completely tear apart with evidence. And this, I hope, I know I'm pretty passionate as a person, so it's really hard for me to be dispassionate, but in a dispassionate, evidence-based way, show their playbook for what it is, and then people can make their own decisions but I think deplatforming doesn't work. Delicensing, though, to your point, Aram, could work. So I think that's a very good point. John, you had a point you might. Yeah, you know, this stuff is really complicated. You know, there's the epistemic uh, rupture that's occurred around uh, anti-science and anti-globalism and political polarization, and, and that's clearly a factor. Um, there are people... Um, and I guess the most prominent example would be Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who, you know, whose father and uncle were both assassinated when he was in his very formative years as a young child. And it, his father and his uncle were assassinated by conspiracies. And so, the, you know, the, the, the conspiracy, t the tendency of, of a certain segment of the population to subscribe to conspiracies, the polarization, the anti-science all play a role. But the thing I want to say 
um, that's that's uh, a bit of a, a novel perspective is I've lurked in a lot of these rooms and the respect that is heaped from one disinformation uh, a proponent to the next for upping the game on disinformation um, is is a social force to be reckoned with. Um, anybody who hasn't hung out in the audience of some of these disinformation rooms really needs to do so and and observe the social reinforcement. So truth is to a great extent, a social construct. Those of us with scientific training like to think of empiricism and, and challenging uh, with new hypotheses and new data to test those hypotheses. But for the majority of people who are not schooled in the scientific method, um, truth is almost purely a social construct. And so if you, if you listen to the social reinforcement in these disinformation rooms on Clubhouse, let alone on Facebook or any other social media, um, you know, the, 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 the people who come with the most extreme points of conspiracy views just get an amazing amazing uh, congratulations from all of the other conspiracy theorists theorists they are they are an echo chamber of, of auto reinforcement and so you know um, it it's uh, Danny Kahneman you know has sort of commented on this uh, with respect to climate change years before COVID happened that you can't change these people's minds with facts the only way to change their minds is to find a uh, one of the leaders of these disinformation campaigns and sit down with them and be empathic and listen and try and persuade them because so many people in this epistemic disrupt, uh, disruption that we're undergoing right now um, have essentially outsourced their critical thinking um, uh, to others. And so to the extent that the, you know, the, the dirty dozen on Facebook who were banned um, because of disinformation um, are the um, the flag bearers for disinformation. It's much more complicated from a, a human behavior and a behavioral economic standpoint um, as just another layer on top of the anti-science, uh, anti-globalism and political polarization. And it's not just on the far right that the linkage between politics and vaccine attitudes is connected. Um, there's some of that on the far left as well. So um, it's a human characteristic to be worried that you're not being given the whole truth because look at how many lies are revealed from Theranos and from politicians and so forth. It's, it's, it's not um, foolish to be distrustful of information because an authority says it. What's foolish is uh, to outsource all of your critical thinking um, to extreme positions on on either side of an issue, and and I think the you know the question was, you know, what would motivate uh, somebody to do this rant that is selective use of statistics and and very selective use of statistics and ignoring, as was stated, the fact that the NHS, which has absolutely zero incentives to overcount. Uh, COVID deaths is seeing the same proportionality of deaths as every other country and on and on and on. Um, it, it, it really, um, no amount, as Danny Kahneman said, you know, and he won the Nobel Prize in Behavioral Economics, no amount of facts will overcome these entrenched conspiracy theorists. You, you, you need to be able to address uh, uh, the people who might 
be some of the key opinion leaders um, that people have outsourced their critical thinking to. And, 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 and again, that's just one of the factors. That doesn't explain everything, but it's just one of the factors. So someone um, like this doc, um, you know, who was interviewed on Joe Rogan, I mean, he got a flood of way to go, you're my hero um, in, in, at scale after that interview you can you can bet on and, and after you know if if uh people go after him it's going to be look they're persecuting me yeah can i i'm David, sorry go ahead yeah you know as as the boomer one of the boomers in the room let me let me and this is gonna okay look free speech is is nonsense there's it, it, there's a cost to speech period full stop if in what is it if you go into a movie theater, you can't yell fire, right? We need to to turn the page on this. We need I would a number of things, but let me just propose two. It we need to develop some level of accountability for those who publish, and then just you know finish defining what that means. Um, it, it just the, the, some of that information, misinformation. Second. As somebody who remembers <clears throat> pre-Google life, um, you know our the way our minds are literally our minds have changed. Our brains and minds have changed. The social media has has really all of the behavioral psychological changes that have emerged from having a doggone phone and the notifications, all of that. And there are people in this room that can go into, go into a deep dive on that. But we are different as a species with regards to this. But let me just get back to Google. Google has, the Google interface, let me just put, put it that way, has not evolved. And, and they are in a great position, and I would argue in a responsible position where they need to be held accountable to rev that interface in a way that presents categories, just color coding it is at a minimum. Um, when people are trying to get healthcare information, medical, or the, all this COVID, or it, it would take very little, everybody, um, w w in regards and in terms of this, the scale of capabilities they have, to nudge their interface of Google to remind people that just by doing a search, you're not getting an MD, and also to put some level of alerting for sources or information that has been flagged to be misinformation, but it hasn't been done. I, I was in a room just to kind of, you know, to pick up on what John said about some of these rooms on Clubhouse are great to pop into because you kind of really get to hear, you know, just different conversations. I heard a, a gentleman talking about how he was quote unquote nerding out because he was doing some research on Google on some he rabbit hole on some topic. And, you know, he, he was talking to a bunch of doctors, sharing his opinion, asking questions, but he, he was, he was, um, he was nerding out. And I just had to follow up on that and say, no, nerding out is studying for 12 plus years in meds, going through med school. That's nerding out. And that's, that's the thing that, that some of the, you know, they, you know, people who believe that nerding out is going through Google searches and reading a summary, or reading a freaking tweet, that's not nerding out, and we just need to help people understand that. Okay, sorry, this 
it gets my blood going too, my blood pressure. I'm David, I'm done speaking. Awesome. Thank you, David. So I think we got through Robert Malone. We did it. No, no, I didn't say any curse words. I just want to take some credit here. No curse words said. I didn't uh, call him any names. I did a good job through that. Uh, so Congrats. I'm proud of myself. Congrats. Thank you, you Erica. Deserve bravo I for that. Did it. I wouldn't have done the same. <laughs> okay. So, Ellie, I know you got to go. So, before you go, you had a story, uh, a new article that you wanted to discuss on COVID, which is so timely right now that uh, I think it, it bears mentioning. Go ahead, Ellie. Yeah, and and it's it's kind of alarming. It is a preprint. We have to like make the disclaimers. Uh, one of the authors is Anne Wiley, who uh, pioneered the saliva direct testing for uh, PCR testing, a reverse transcript PCR testing for uh, SARS-CoV-2 in saliva, um, which they you know open sourced essentially and made available to anybody who wants to wants to uh, adopt it. Um, they uh, were involved in workplace testing, and um, they were they they did a study uh, comparing the results of PCR and rapid antigen tests, and it was the the Binax now, and also the uh, the Quidel uh, QuickView tests that they compared to, and we again we have to acknowledge that this is only the subgroup that they that they compared in was a sample size of five but uh it's it's alarming because if you see the false negatives on the antigen rapid antigen tests for uh two to three days um after uh the first positive pcr test um, when you couple that with both the fact that we were hoping, and it was still true for Delta, that the rapid antigen tests could be used um, to figure out who was going to be contagious so that, for example, you could have them not go to work or to uh, um, not go to school or not go to an event or not get on a plane, right? Um, that use case is in serious question uh, when anybody is infected with Omicron, which you know now is is you know, the large majority of uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 infections, and uh, you know this is this is going to be a problem. Uh, you know, assuming this this is verified, and I'm sure that there are lots of people looking at this now. This this uh, paper has been out for uh, a few days now. I think it's nearly a week. Um, but uh, but anyway, I mean, I've been a proponent of the rapid antigen test as well as uh, saliva PCR because we we really need you know uh, much larger scale uh, diagnostics to uh, intercept uh, uh, contagion uh, as one of the ways out. Of course, uh, you know masks masks are, are high quality masks are number one. But uh, this was going to be an important part of it. And to the extent that we're, we're losing that uh, or need to do uh, do better in terms of the, the tests that are uh, available, because availability is a problem even with these tests. Uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of work to do still to get this this pandemic under control. So, so to kind of make it simpler for everybody else, the, the, the big, big update, as Ellie clearly articulately said, is that 
Most Omicron cases, according to this article, were infectious for several days before the rapid antigen test could uh, could detect them, which means for you and your family, if you're symptomatic and the test comes back negative, you probably have Omicron. If this, I, I'm the walking use case for that. <laughs> yeah, so I just want no. to be very clear about that. That's a, that's a, but the other big thing is, if you're symptomatic, you've probably been spreading Omicron for like three days, three to four days, correct, Ellie? I just want to make sure that that was the yeah. That that's it, the big thing. It, with, with Omicron, it looks like uh, people can start to be uh, contagious, you know, in two days, uh, maybe slightly under two days from infection. This is a, this is a different virus with different uh, uh, or a different viral phenotype, I should say, with different tissue uh, tropism. And th this is also why, you know, some people are, are talking about going away from nasal swabs to, to uh, throat swabs, or at least combining the, the nasal swabs with, with throat swabs uh, to get a better sample. So there's a reason behind the, the throat swab thing. And then Anna Marie would love to get your thoughts. So I was going to say that, you know, the throat swab thing is super important. So what we've seen in the course of this disease, and again, not super evidence-based. This is much more on what we're seeing in terms of symptoms from patients is that you're not getting that super chest congestion-y uh, type symptoms. You're seeing it really be up in the upper airway above the vocal cords. And a lot of patients, even my own family that have gotten Omicron or, or family and friends that have gotten Omicron, they all say my throat's on fire. We're seeing that quite a lot much more than we did with earlier waves and earlier variants. That's a very common thing. And, and so therefore, some of the people have said, hey, we're getting a lot of false negatives uh, with nasal swabs alone, uh, especially the, the rapid antigen nasal swabs, which are, you know, not even nasopharyngeal swabs. And so, you know, let's do oral swabs uh, or oropharyngeal swabs, uh, which is in the mouth and the throat uh, to, to be very, very careful. And I've I've been hearing anecdotally that that's working better, uh, but I, I don't think the evidence has borne out. Uh, Anna Marie, did you have a quick comment before we move on? Oh, just my, my quick comment was both twofold. One that um, the, there's no access right now to, to I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if anyone else can, can validate this, but as someone who was supposed to be on an international flight um, yesterday, last night, uh, I can tell you how hard it is to get any kind of test, home test, antigen test. Um, what, even if you are trying to get something on Amazon right now, it's two weeks out. I mean, none of it's going to be useful, yeah, right? Like, yeah. There is not a single, there's not a single drugstore within the Twin Cities metropolitan area that you can walk into and get a home test, like buy one, or like it used to be where you could go through drive-through at Walgreens and get a test, like get a test done there, and then they would actually send you the rapid result, and then they'd send you a confirmation result again at 48 hours. And those, those used to be very easy to get in the summer and fall, I, and because we would have to for various things, we were going to the hospital or this or that. Um, now it's like, I mean, forget it. There's nothing out there. If I wanted to get, which was required by the way, to get on this flight, a PCR test, um, the the waits were five and six hours at at the few sites where you could get one and generally speaking i would say in my conversations with just anyone else 
floating around trying to get testing, there isn't still is not a clear understanding among the general population of the difference between a rapid test and a PCR test and you know, which you should get under which circumstances, what you should trust and whether you should um, just start, if you've got any of these symptoms, it should just start acting as if, right? And so that's sort of like the universe that I'm operating in now where you wake up in the morning and you sort of feel like, you remember when you're in college and you had a hangover and you said it feels like someone dumped sand down your throat? Like kind of that's how Omicron, I mean, that's what it feels like. Your throat feels just janky. And whether you've got some other flu or some other respiratory thing coming on, it's like, don't put yourself out there, you know, into the into the world at the moment. Just, you know, act like you have even, but I'm, my, my issue is that so many people are feeling this way. They can't even test themselves at home, much less go in. And this is what you're saying about urgent cares and ERs and people flooding in there because they're sort of like, well, I have to get a test. I have to get a test. And where else are they going to go? Such a systematic failure. Um, and like you said, no one one entity or one place that we can place blame. But it's so frustrating that this is happening at this stage of the pandemic. Hey, can I ask a question just because we are in regular flu season as well? And it's kind of a self-motivated question. But um, what what are the symptoms that would be more Omicron-based versus regular flu? If you have flu-like symptoms, Jennifer, I would proceed as if you have Omicron. And Keisha, you can kind of jump in on this. I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, but that's what, how I. What is flu like? Have, so, what it would even be flu like? Like, I think I'm sore cold, throat, like, yeah. sniffles, uh, fever, uh, fatigue. Uh, you know, uh, any, fatigue. Fatigue, exactly. Exactly. You know, I would say those are the things that are considered traditionally. Thank you, Jennifer, for the question. It's, again, we got, we got to get to the brass tacks so that people know what to do. You're absolutely right. So, if you have, you know, uh, maybe at some level coughing, but you know, you're, you're getting nasal symptoms. You're, you're coughing a lot. You're having a throat, sore throat is a big one right now with Omicron from what we're hearing. Um, and, uh, fever fatigue. Uh, I would proceed as if you have Omicron until proven otherwise. And even if the rapid test comes back negative, uh, I would probably assume that you had Omicron until you have a PCR negative, but, uh, Keisha, Dr. Pak-Tang, I'm not sure how you guys recommend this for your patients, but I would love to get your thoughts. As Dr. Keisha, I'll just speak from as a pathologist with the testing, and I'm glad that uh, Anna Marie brought that up. And Dr. Tusa, thank you for uh, pinging me in. I have, um, if you look at my IG, uh, Dr. Donish, the tiles, I guess you call them, the middle tile, the top one, and the middle bottom, the one right below it are about the testing. One video is about the home testing and the difference between the PCR testing when that's done versus the home testing. The importance if you're doing home testing, no symptoms, serial testing is best. And then the one before above that is a picture of me. It's just a picture of me with a um, by next now card is the places where you can look for testing. There are some places that actually have different sites you can go online. I think I have seven um, mentioned, projectn95.org as well, like if you wanna get batch testing, and then also connect to a test.org. Arizona State University actually has a project of multiple things. There is like a um, connect to a test, and then for businesses, you know, when to test, how to test, and all of those are together, but connect to test.org literally lists the places you can go, and you also have to be careful, Dr. Donish, because there are, as FDA said, some false places doing it. So if you happen to go onto Amazon, make sure that you're doing an FDA 
EUA approved um, authorized test. And that now is up to 13 on Marie, um, the NIH RADx program, and they'll be coming on soon um, in the Pathology and Medicine Club to really uh, break it down. So if you have questions, please uh, send them to me so I can have those ready. But really awesome. bring on the tests because um, they're working on many projects. They've really gone from like billions from, if I look from months ago to now, the the scale of which they've done the test is amazing. And now we're up to 13 EUA home tests in the last two weeks. So we're getting there. Yes, we're definitely late on it, um, but please check out that resource with the different places to find the test online so you can be stocked up. So Thank what's you. interesting, Keisha, would, would be helpful to get, because I think there's, you know, when people are looking for tests, they go on Google, and they start looking COVID test near me and they find nothing, right? Like the average person is doing that. With these tests, are you know, can you get a test in your hands within 24 hours? And do they actually have available tests today? So some of them actually do. Connect to a test.org will actually say, for instance, there's multiple pages and you'll you'll push on a test, right? Whether it's a loom and you know, Binax now is what everyone knows, but there's um, many more, 12 other different ones. So try to go for ones that aren't as common. And if you click on them, it'll show you the different places you can get them, Dr. Donish, including online, including from that company. Perfect. And yes, get them in 24 hours. There's also two other ways with home testing. There's home collection. So if you ever look and you see something that looks like $99, that's a home collection kit. That's a, a kit, and Amazon has one as well, and they're pretty fast. They send it to you, you nasal swab yourself, and then send it off for PCR and get the results sometimes, I think, in 24 to 36 to 48 hours. Um, that's a collection. There's also home-based and molecular tests. There's, I think, two to three that are EUA in the United States. So that test is a little bit more, but I've seen some around 40 to $50, and it's a molecular-based test, um, not PCR, but it's molecular base and as sensitive as PCR, you do at home battery operated and get your result and upload it as well. So that's another option as well. People don't know about those, but those are available. And to be clear, that's hey, the one that Dr. we're actually Keisha? using here uh, at our location uh, is the molecular test to what Keisha is saying. And those are actually much more available. John, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question for Dr. Keisha. It's been really bothering me. Um, the Illum, the original Illum uh, test um, there were reports of false positives. And so they recalled a massive number of tests at a time of great need. My personal bias is from a public policy and a public health standpoint, I would far prefer to have a more sensitive test with some false positives than a very specific test with lots of false negatives. Do you know the backstory behind why Loom was recalled for a small number of false positive tests when its sensitivity was so good? It just struck me as being an overreaction misguided by the, the needs for public health. And I, I haven't been able to get to the bottom of it. Do you have any insight into that? Uh, I will quickly mention um, that uh, uh, it was actually a Bluetooth issue with some of their tests. Keisha, your thoughts? Yeah, there was a Bluetooth um, issue, but also there was, I, I think I know what you're talking about, John, and now everything is fine with one of the, the reagents for it, but everything is fixed. And I agree. I think that, you know, the problem is trying to get stuff out fast 
um, and assuming, you know, a certain company is getting something fast and it happens to issue. But also, I think that issues happen. And the fact that we're in a pandemic um, and that there were so limited amount of companies doing it, that those issues kind of come to the forefront and, of course, look magnified and, and more of a problem. But um, now that they're together, we've got Quidel, we've got so many different companies. Hopefully, you know, this will help things. But but thank you for bringing that up, John. And so wanted to make sure that we end it. Uh, you know, we've got 14 minutes. Uh, I'm going to close the room in 14 minutes. So I want to make sure we have a lot to get through still. Holy cow, today was uh, a lot. So I will, uh, I wanted to make sure that we spoke a little bit about long COVID. People know that this is a area of significant interest for me, but also I think it's an area that we're all going to see a lot of. So um, uh, this new story came out and uh, one of the ministers in Finland uh, has been very vocal that long COVID could become their largest chronic disease. And I will tell you that I have significant concerns that we're going to see this become a, a very common chronic disease here in the U.S. as well. Uh, it's going to be one that we're going to be talking about for decades. And there's actually like a really good, uh, 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 actually Twitter thread, but it connects, it sort of puts together all of the different uh, studies that have been done on long COVID, the pathogenesis and what's going on. Um, and I can, uh, uh, if you go to Health News Around the World, Health News CH on Twitter, you'll see that we retweeted that uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, but this story um, came from uh, the Minister of Family Affairs and Social Services, Krista Kiuru at, uh, in Finland. She spoke at a news conference uh, and uh, after speaking to an expert panel, uh, she showed, this is very scary stuff, but uh, one in two adults and around 2% of children may experience prolonged symptoms secondary to COVID in Finland. Um, those numbers, and just to be clear, the reason why the, the Finnish or the fin, uh, Finland government is in, have a really good infrastructure and they're following this very, very closely. And so, you know, again, when we're talking about why aren't we seeing similar numbers around the world? It's probably because we're not catching it around the world. Uh, and what, what David and John were saying earlier that our tracking infrastructure is, is not as good as you would expect as, you know, uh, the country that, that probably most of the, the, the greatest innovations have come out of the fact that we can't track appropriately is a big issue. Well, Finland does a good job of that. They actually have a very good social services uh, infrastructure. So just to be clear, they found that one in two adults and around 2% of children have prolonged symptoms with COVID. We don't know if they're going to continue robust. Uh, there's going to be continued uh, long COVID in those, uh, in those children and those adults. But holy cow, if that does not strike fear in people's hearts, I don't know what does. It's, it's scary stuff. That, those numbers are incredibly scary for me. Um, so what they uh, – I'm sorry, did somebody have a – John, did you have a comment there? Yeah, just, just a real quick comment. So back in June, the UK um, implemented 15, I believe, pediatric long COVID clinics because even with the Delta virus raging there at that time, they were seeing 10 to 20% of children ending up with symptoms. And, and here's one of the problems with long COVID. There is no standardized definition. Everybody defines it differently. Um, and so one person's long COVID statistic cannot be normalized readily to another country's long COVID statistic. But suffice it to say, there's been a fairly high prevalence that's been, for the most part, ignored um, 
since the beginning of the pandemic. There are people who frequent Clubhouse whose lives have been destroyed by long COVID before they could even get, before there was even uh, test availability back in February and March of 2020. So they're being excluded from any research protocols because they don't have a positive PCR or antigen test. And so uh, we are going to pay a huge price for neglecting this aspect of it. And I'll just say it right now, personally, I'm not worried about acute COVID being vaccinated and boosted. I'm very worried about long COVID because it turns out that while vaccines reduce the incidence of long COVID when you get infected, they reduce the infection. And if you do get infected, they reduce your risk of getting long COVID. You can still get long COVID. And so my concern in masking and distancing personally is not just protecting the loved ones and friends and colleagues around me, but it's almost exclusively about the risk of long COVID, not about the acute disease. And I, I wish more people would understand that and take the masking and distancing more seriously because of the risk to their health and their brain long-term because of long COVID. It is not rare. There are more people on the planet today suffering from long COVID than there are deaths from COVID globally, which is itself over 5 million. Can I, can I make a request? Because, oh man, one out of two. Okay, so, oh, oh. And John, I've been listening to, to your advice since I met you. And, you know, we're doing our best because my, my, like most of us, we're trying to anchor on just not ever getting this, hopefully. Um, it's, but I, let me ask you a question because the, what, to, to, to reset a new context onto, to me, in my, in my mind, what the big threat needs to be understood as is the long COVID, right? We, I keep hearing about, well, not all the, uh, not all the geographies agree on what the symptom, like there's no agreement in the healthcare community, uh, community, medical community with regards to defining it. But can we just start with just some simple categorizations, like persona, like in marketing, we do personas, right? Like a certain persona, like, you know, you might be this age and if you, you might have it for several months and brain fog, you know, but brain fog that manifests in this way and then color it with like, so if you are a, you know, a white collar worker, this is what, how it can affect. People need to feel, I mean, this is just marketing stuff I know, but people need to really visualize, feel, under, to understand what long COVID risk is. And as we are getting into year three, it sounds like, you know, forget diabetes, or at least alongside diabetes, it looks like we're getting a, a whole new chronic disease that's putting set, you know, brought out of Pandora's box here. But, but that, you know, if, if we can get the medical healthcare uh, professionals to just come up, and Dr. Donish, we can chat about this, and I think you're already working on this, is just help us understand what that means, because we need to understand it to be able to really appreciate the risk. Thanks, I'm David, I'm done speaking. Yeah, thanks, David. I'll, I'll let Danish take it from here. I, I, I'm multitasking. I can't, can't weigh in now. Yeah, no, I think there's... So, again, to kind of finish up on this story on Finland, um, the, the number that really uh, was... The end of the article, they mentioned the data. And so the data shows that of the people that are getting long COVID, 
one out of five or 20% see long-term cognitive impairment. Uh, and uh, the data, according to, to Risto Aroin, who's a professor of neuro- neurology and chairman of the expert panel for Finland, was uh, saying that uh, the incidence of neurologic diseases such as Alzheimer's or Parkinson's could increase sharply following a COVID-19 infection. Again, I'd love to see the data that that's based on. I think there's some early indication of the connection between inflammation uh, secondary to, to COVID in the brain and, and a similar pathway with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. But I think that was a speculation. The big thing that is not a speculation, that is the empirical data, is around 20% see long-term cognitive impairment. Uh, that's, that, by the, just so people know, that's different from brain fog. So brain fog is, uh, is a symptom. This is actual cognitive impairment from, a, uh, from an, uh, a science and actually evaluating these patients, probably using some validated tool. The last thing that they mentioned was Finland has had 5.5 million, uh, is a country of 5.5 million people, and they've already had about uh, 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 305,522. So if you do the math in your head, you start realizing we're talking about 150,000 or more uh, people uh, that have long COVID in Finland alone, according to their public health officials. Holy crap. Oh man, that's a very large number. Okay, uh, so uh, one one quick one quick note, um, and you know I've been making the 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 opposite point to this. Uh, we don't know what uh, the situation is going to be with Omicron. I mean, we can hope that uh, uh, it causes less long COVID, but of course, hope is not a plan, um, and we need the data to know what uh, we're up against. And uh, they they are getting it right uh, in Finland, you know, by taking that unknown as a reason for caution rather than uh, a reason to not worry about it. Yeah, yeah this is Dr. Paitang. I, I too, Danish, I, I, I'm terrified. Um, I've been telling people all along, like, it, but it's so hard in the U.S., right? Right now we're still, like, in this, in the middle of a fire yet again. And, um, like, even I, I've been, uh, I have symptoms of long COVID after I got it. I'm one of those people that got it at the very beginning of the pandemic as a ER doctor. So I never got tested um, officially. And the um, and it's very hard to track in this country. So I'm really excited that Finland and other people, places that have better tracking can start doing this tracking um, and the research so that doctors here in the US can actually start believing in on masks. Because I'll tell you that when I talk to it's difficult when I have people come to the ER, uh, they describe it to me, their symptoms, they are in serious uh, mental and physical distress over their symptoms, but their primary care physicians have little or no resources to give them and or do not believe that they have are suffering from long COVID. So it's really difficult, I think, right now in the healthcare system, because we are so broken here right now, to um, get people onto this part of it. The messaging, the communications is so poor, just around trying to get people vaccinated. Um, uh, and the, now the testing with Omicron, as we, we all just discussed. And so I think, unfortunately, I, I don't know if the U.S., 
is ready to really take this on. I'm so glad that there are these research groups that are mostly self-funded that are looking into this en masse in the US. But um, this article just gets me excited because it's just unveiling some more of the truth so that we can all get on board. But I think from a communication standpoint to try to convince uh, US citizens that like you don't want to get COVID because you don't want to get long COVID, uh, I think it's a really difficult argument to make right now, um, as so many people are like, eh, whatever, everyone's going to get Omicron, so I might as well get it. And I'm like, no, please do not start thinking that. But that, you know, it's hard. We've been going through this for so long, and that that's the way people are feeling these days. Um, so maybe it is a, it's around time that we can start putting that long COVID danger messaging and and. Me too, Eli. I hope that uh, Omicron isn't giving people a long COVID because then, then we're going to be really in the shitter. Sorry to be a little depressing, but actually I'm very excited about this news. Hi, <laughs> just Dr. The, the Catherine. <laughs> I, I just want to follow up with um, what we're hearing here and that I tell my patients this because I feel like a COVID-19 uh, hotline service lately. There's so much. I say we're really in a data-free zone here with respect to will Omicron cause long COVID and the most common post-COVID symptoms we see are fatigue, cough, shortness of breath, pulmonary fibrotic changes, brain fog, altered attention span, cognitive impairments, sleep disturbances, depression, anxiety, headache, hair loss, rash, muscle aches, joint pain, loss of smell, taste, abdominal bloating, chronic diarrhea, cardiomyopathy, very concerning vasculopathy, that means you're getting blood clots to tissue, cardiac electrical disturbances, myocarditis, palpitations, and positional orthostatic hypotension, meaning just going from sitting to standing makes you feel like you're going to fall out um, and you have a racing heart rate. So these are really unfortunate situations that I think what Dr. Mattson said is something we should really remind people of when they're talking about the death rate of this disease, there are more people who have long COVID now than have died from COVID. And this is the phase of the pandemic where we expect that number to only go up. And so I really don't want to be seeing the next decades of our life living amongst zombies who are, you know, tired and aging precipitously we can prevent the transmission of this disease by wearing properly fitted uh, KN95 masks and, you know, making some choices as we're going through the surge. If you have to get this virus, I would prefer you get it when we have more early treatment antiviral options that are safe, effective, and easy to source. That is not the case right now. I cannot easily find you a Paxlovid prescription or uh, the monoclonal antibodies that are effective for Omicron. We just don't have enough supply for the caseload. One of our local hospitals here in um, Naperville, Illinois, a suburb west of Chicago, ran out of ventilators, canceling elective surgeries, sending people home with oxygen uh, that should be usually admitted to the hospital. And we're not at the peak. so. If you can avoid getting this, please do. Thank you. Thank you. Olu, you mentioned, you uh, messaged me in the back channel, then Sandra will go to you. I just want to make sure, Olu, you had a resource that you wanted to bring up uh, for people that are suffering from long COVID. Can you share? 
Yeah, can you can you hear me Perfectly. okay? Yeah, so I just wanted to make sure that everybody was aware that NIH has a very um, a large initiative called Recover, just devoted to studying um, long COVID with sites across the country. And I think um, NYU is, I think, the coordinating center for this uh, multi-site study. Um, so you should check it out. It's at recovercovid.org um, to learn more about the project. Um, I'm aware of it because at my institution here at the University of Illinois in Chicago, we're one of the sites. Um, we have a long COVID clinic and several associated studies um, to sort of really tap into the etiology risk factors for long COVID and, and possible treatments. So I just want to make sure that people are aware that the government is putting some money behind this. Thanks. So Olu, as a, as a follow up on that, don't most large institutions have long COVID clinics now? And is that just an indicator of how prevalent in, in I'm not sure how involved you are with the clinic at UIC, but um, I mean, is there a long wait list? Is it going crazy? Are there a bunch of people waiting? Or, you know, is is the truth of Finland not so true here in the US? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how busy it is um, currently. I mean, I think there is not a lot of um, awareness that these clinics exist, um, you know, just by based on what I hear from some of the rooms, especially on Clubhouse, where people feel like there's not enough attention to it. Um, I know definitely in more academic circles, um, there's definitely a lot of attention to it. And I, and I really appreciated the, the thread that you shared on the Health News um, Twitter channel. Um, and, um, but we, we're not seeing, I don't think it's like overwhelmed, uh, unlike our, you know, ERs, but um, I, I'm also concerned that with Omicron, that it just might be the beginning. And that's the scariest part. Just to be clear, we don't have data Unless, by the way, if anybody does have data on Omicron and long COVID, please share. But we don't have any convincing data yet. It might be way too early, just by definition of what long COVID is, of the rates of long COVID with Omicron. And so, you know, when people are talking about it's a milder disease, they're referring specifically to hospitalizations and deaths. And um, before we, we call it quits today, I wanted to make a, a quick PSA. A lot of people in our lives are saying that what we should do to combat COVID is get healthier. You're absolutely right. If you are healthier, you have a lower risk. But I wanted to be very clear about this. There's been a lot of like obesity shaming in, in during COVID. And uh, I wanted to speak specifically to that. So the data shows that the risk ratio of uh, of if you are above a certain BMI, if you are obese, and if you are morbidly obese, that difference uh, in in outcome is not even that much. It's not as much as you think. You're talking about an increase from one, you know, one in a normal healthy person to somebody that is uh, uh, overweight of 1.2 to 1.3. I remember the numbers to be and then in obese, it's 1.8. And morbidly obese, I believe it gets like 1.9 or 2.0 something. So it's not a significant... I mean, that's a pretty big increase. But you know what's a really big increase? Age. People above the age of 60, that, that odds ratio or the increased risk goes up, to, goes up to the high single digits. So we're talking about, you know, seven, eight times more at risk. And so if you're above the age of 70, you're at, I believe it was six point something. I'll get the numbers and I'll tweet it out. 
So and and the, the, the quick thing to mention is that, you know, vaccines change that and Omicron is changing that again. Yeah. And so the, 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 the point that I'm trying to get to is there's been a lot of talk around this, around getting healthy. Do we want people to get healthy? The answer is absolutely. Are vaccines completely protective? The answer is no. You still have to mask. You still have to wash your hands. You still have to distance when you can. And I think that that's important to keep in mind. Right now, the number of people that I know that are vaccinated and boosted that have gotten uh, COVID in the last month is pretty high. Just as much of the people that I, the problem is, I, I think it's just selective selection bias, but I don't know that many people. I think it's hard to be around me without getting the constant conversation around vaccination, probably. But I don't know that many people that are not even a little bit vaccinated, one vaccine, partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated, but not boosted. I do have people like that in my life. And they are also getting Omicron. The difference is around not only the risk of hospitalization and deaths, but around the risk of long COVID, as John said earlier. I want that data on long COVID. I hope that data comes out around Omicron and long COVID, and I hope it's very, very low. I hope it's even lower than all the previous variants. It's just, we don't know that yet. And so until we know, we've talked a little bit about long COVID and the possibility that long COVID will be one of the largest chronic diseases that we face as a nation. I think, I think an abundance of caution, just because everybody's doing it. Remember what mom would tell you when you were growing up? Just because everybody's doing it is not a reason for you to do it. Don't go out there and try to catch Omicron and not be scared of Omicron. Omicron still could have a high risk of long COVID, and I wanted to leave everybody with that. So with that, Dr. I'm sorry, Dr. go ahead. Dunnish, just, just as, a, as a helpful reminder, so is there a specific cognitive impairment assessment that you would suggest we track as a diary? Since Because of all the systemic issues with regards to so many people are getting it. Test kits aren't available. From a self-care perspective, is there just a really simple, kind of like jumping on the scale and jumping off to get my BMI read, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, there... can, I can tell you exactly Thank what you. I would do. So in terms of my family, if somebody is uh, symptomatic, I assume I have, you know, if somebody's symptomatic, I, I, I tell them, assume you have COVID, get a test, make sure. If your test is negative, but you're still symptomatic, Assume you have COVID and act accordingly. That is the easiest thing I would recommend for everybody. I know it sounds harsh. And I know that maybe some of my colleagues might say, Danish, that will lead to the entire work, workforce infrastructure falling apart if everybody that's getting a cold assumes that they have COVID. But I think that if you, uh, so what can you do if you do have, let's say that you have a negative test and you have COVID, you're mildly symptomatic, you can still go about your business. Wear an N95, protect yourself, protect the others around you uh, and wear it correctly. Those are the, that's what I mean by change your behavior around it. Because for every person that gets it, they're giving it to five people, to 10 people. And those 10 people are giving it to 10 people. And that's how this gets really, really bad. Talk, hear, hear in Dr. Paktang's voice, hear in Catherine's voice, hear in Erica's voice, the doctors are on the front lines. You can hear in their voice. On, I'm not one of them. I'm not the one that's taking care of these people. It's easy for me to say it's not a big deal. Just like it's easy for Robert Malone and others to say it's not a big deal. But the ones that are on the ground that are seeing their census get bigger and bigger, they're seeing patients, you know, right now ICUs across the country are about 70% full, right? Like we're talking about a legitimate 
you know, at least back in the day, we were talking about flattening the curve. Nobody cares about the curve anymore. And that's the scariest part. And so, David, the, the best thing that people can do is isolate and uh, mask when they think that they have even the slightest symptoms. That's what I would do a daily check-in to see that. If you and, are and- COVID positive, uh, sorry, uh, Ellie, I just want to make sure. If you are COVID positive, yeah, the, the easiest thing to do is to, I can tell you this, brain fog. And again, Dr. Pakten can 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 weigh in on this. It's not subtle. It's not subtle. You know you got it. <laughs> you know you have brain fog when you have it. Uh, and uh, and I would say that uh, for the people that are struggling with brain fog or they're struggling with the inability to get up and go, um, uh, you know, those things are not very subtle. Those are pretty obvious. And and so, David, if you have, uh, God forbid, you get COVID and you start seeing that those symptoms are emerging once you have recovered from COVID, but they're emerging and they have this like emergent quality to them. They, you know, you, all your symptoms go away and then the sudden emergence of this, of this brain fog comes um, and other, other symptoms, respiratory symptoms come. Go to your primary care doctor if you have one and talk to them about it and then they'll tell you how to manage it. I, I think that it's important to have that relationship and have somebody tracking it because I think it's going to be important as we move forward. Ali, I just wanted to give you the last word and then we're going to close up. Yeah, well, the, the other message is that, you know, everybody should be using uh, high quality masks consistently and, and hopefully uh, they won't get infected in the first place. Absolutely. Sandra, oh, sorry, I just want to get Sandra. Well, word. I think sorry, the Sandra. last word would be this is uh, to be continued. I would love to see us having regular rooms on long COVID because I, like everyone here, I'm really scared of this and I'm scared for our healthcare community. We don't have the resources, uh, the emerging behavioral health. We're already seeing uh, incidents of suicide, depression sky high. We don't have enough um, clinicians to help people. And so I think we need um, to be really vocal about the problem and how uh, there can be potential solutions. Um, And this is very similar to people who suffer from tick-borne illnesses, for example, mold-related conditions where it's chronic, variety of strange symptoms, and uh, they feel isolated, lost, and it often leads to a lot of very severe mental health conditions. I'm Sandra and I'm done speaking. Perfect ending. Thank you, Sandra. Appreciate everybody being here today. This was a, a very jam-packed session, but we, we went for a long time and I think it's time to call it quits. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy your, your Sunday and we'll see you next week.